At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hooray for Hollywood. It's time for the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. We have traveled from the Gulf Coast to the West Coast with this new season, coming to a stop in Los Angeles, the fabled city of angels, home to palm trees, movie stars, swimming pools, and the American dream we know as Hollywood. It's a place of shadows and sunlight, mythology and murder, and has long been home to more cranks, nutcases, killers, and lunatics than you'll find just about anywhere else in the country. In season five, we're walking the mean streets of the big city, taking a look at the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of Hollywood, that glamorous bit of Los Angeles that's not so much a place these days, but a state of mind. Each episode of the new season, which started with episode 70 for you completists out there, will reveal another sordid Hollywood tale of crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. And these episodes may not be suitable for all listeners, so listen at your own peril. You've been warned. But go ahead, visit the concession stand before the lights are turned down, grab a hot dog, some popcorn, and a soda, and get ready for a new episode of American Hauntings. And action. You've probably heard the old saying, every good theater has a ghost. The old adage probably came about thanks to the spirits who lurk in the old stage theaters of yesterday, but should come as no surprise to find that movie theaters have their ghosts too. What is it about a theater that seems to attract a ghost? Could it be the range of emotions expressed by the actors from joy to sorrow to fear? Perhaps all that emotion attracts spirits who need that energy to exist, or perhaps Another terrible or tragic event occurred in a theater, just as they do in other kinds of buildings, and that leaves an impression behind as a haunting. Theaters also demand a lot of love and devotion from the staff members, actors, and directors who work there, and in many cases, these same staff members return to their favorite theaters after death. They are the footsteps heard walking across the stage, the mysterious wind that moves the curtains, or the shadowy stagehand that's seen on the catwalk. They remember the theater as the place where they found their greatest happiness or returned because of some unfinished event that was never completed in life. Or, well, maybe theater people are just crazy and theater ghosts are all in their heads. Well, probably not in every case, but sometimes you do have to wonder. Regardless, theaters all over America, live theaters and movie theaters alike, are home to a great number of ghosts that range from the frightening to the playful to the tragic, and Hollywood is no exception. As we've already discussed, motion pictures began in the late 1800s with the invention of motion toys designed to trick the eye and to see an illusion of motion from a display of still frames in quick succession. 
These toys were replaced with cameras in 1872 when Edward Moobridge created the first movie by placing 12 cameras on a racetrack and rigging the cameras to capture shots in quick sequence as a horse crossed in front of their lenses. The movie was only a few seconds long, but hey, it was still a movie. Well, the first film created for motion photography was invented in 1885 by George Eastman and William H. Walker. The name Eastman may be familiar. He's the guy who created Kodak. Two brothers, August and Louis Lumiere, soon created a hand crank machine that projected still pictures in quick succession and movies were truly born. In the early 1900s, people like Thomas Edison, and despite what he claimed a lot of other people, made great advancements in film and motion picture technology. They learned to edit films, create backdrops, and tell stories, as the novelty of simply showing things move on a screen began to wear a little thin. Well, one of the earliest and most famous movies created during this time was The Great Train Robbery in 1903. It's all of 11 minutes long, and well, you can watch the whole thing now on YouTube. In those days, though, you would have gone to a Nickelodeon to see it. These were small, five-cent theaters that offered an easy and inexpensive way for the public to watch movies. Usually, they were a little more than a storefront, darkened by curtains and filled with folding chairs. The audience would be treated to a dozen or so very short films, and Nickelodeons were very popular prior to 1910. They helped the movie industry move into the 20s by increasing the public appeal of film and generated money for filmmakers. They also helped spread propaganda about America's entry into World War I across the country. When the war ended, the United States began a cultural boom that saw the rise of Hollywood, home of motion pictures in America. The end of World War I ushered the United States into a cultural boom. A new industry center was on the rise, Hollywood, the home of motion pictures in America. It was in the 1920s that the movie industry really began to thrive. At the same time, the studios gave birth to the movie star. With hundreds of films being made each year, movies quickly became the biggest industry in Los Angeles. With all those movies being made, local audiences needed a place to see them. Well, it wasn't until 1922 in the opening of Sid Grauman's first Hollywood theater, The Egyptian, that Hollywood started to rival downtown as a location for star-studded premieres and first-run exhibitions. The Egyptian was the first real movie palace in Hollywood and built by Sid Grauman, a Jewish showman from New York who came west to develop new talent in the vaudeville business. He later turned his attention to theaters, which was perfect for the star-studded premieres of the day because, well, Sid knew everyone. He was known far and wide to Hollywood's leading stars and was considered to be a close friend to many of them, including Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. It was from Grauman's office that Fatty called the San Francisco police to turn himself in after a tragic event in that city over Labor Day weekend, which, believe me, we'll get to in a future episode. Sid also knew stars like Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford, both of whom had performed at his vaudeville houses on their way up. He took credit for Mary's nickname of America's Sweetheart. Sid was an independent exhibitor when he opened the Egyptian, which was rare at a time when movie studios owned their own theaters. But his close connections with all the studio heads and their stars allowed him to succeed. It also didn't hurt that he did a great job of creating a romantic atmosphere with decor, costume staff, and elaborate live shows that preceded the pictures. The films were accompanied by Jan Sofer conducting the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra, as well as a gigantic Wurlitzer pipe organ. A nursery was provided for parents to leave their children, and the opening program noted that, quote, kitties may be parked there with safety and convenience. 
On the staff, in addition to a nurse and a storyteller in the nursery, were, quote, 28 Egyptian ladies-in-waiting, four lobbymen, three porters, footmen, etc., all costumed by the Western Costume Company. The program noted that, quote, nothing but masterpieces of the cinema art would be shown at the Egyptian. And in the beginning, the Egyptian was running only two shows a day with reserved seats at legit prices and making a lot of money. In the first three years of operation, the Egyptian ran only four movies. Robin Hood, which ran for nearly five months, The Covered Wagon, The Ten Commandments, and Thief of Baghdad, starring Douglas Fairbanks. Many other movies followed, and eventually the Egyptian would be the first theater in town to be wired for sound. The Vitaphone, which provided sound for movies, was called, quote, the most marvelous discovery of all time. <laughs> Boy, that's Hollywood for you. In 1927, when Sid moved up the street to his new theater, the Egyptian's management was taken over by West Coast theaters. It went dark, and a few days later, it reopened under new management as a second-run house with continuous performances and, well, no more Sid Grauman opening acts. Sid had moved his razzle-dazzle to his new place, the Spectacular Chinese Theater, which is now one of the most easily recognized landmarks in the world. Sid hoped to follow up on his success with the Egyptian theater with this new Oriental-style building, which he built with help from his partners, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks. Sid kept the opening programs, at least until Fox became one of the controlling partners and ended them, and had sound installed in less than a year after the theater's opening. One fine point that Sid always insisted on in his theater was the smell. His theaters always had a reputation for smelling nice. The system he used at the Chinese was called Perfu from the West Coast Perfume Corporation. The stuff came in solid pellets inert until placed in their, quote, electric disseminator, where you had a rheostat to control the strength of the aroma desired. Sid was always a character and had an ongoing role as managing director at the Chinese theater until his death in 1950. In 1949, he was even given a special Oscar for showmanship, the only one ever given to a theater operator. Of course, the most famous feature of the theater is the concrete sidewalk in front, which is marked with the names, handed footprints, and unique signatures of Hollywood's biggest stars. Legend has it that the sidewalk of fame got started by accident. The story goes that screen star Norma Talmadge made a misstep one night that became Hollywood history. Apparently, Talmadge was unaware that cement had been freshly poured outside the theater's lobby and accidentally stepped into it. Her shoes left an impermanent impression in the concrete, and a tradition was born, or so the Hollywood version of the story goes. Sid told a different story. In an interview at the end of a 1937 Lux radio theater program, Sid told Cecil B. DeMille that the idea of putting hand and footprints in the cement was, quote, pure accident. I walked right into it. When we were building the theater, I accidentally happened to step in some soft concrete, and there it was. So I went to Mary Pickford immediately. Mary put her foot into it. The theater's third partner, Douglas Fairbanks, was the next celebrity to be immortalized in cement. Regardless of how it all got started, scores of celebrities have left their hands and footprints outside the theater since those early years, and this stretch of sidewalk has become one of Hollywood's most popular tourist attractions. Sid, who was never married, was devoted to his mother, Rosa. She's the only non-celebrity who left her mark behind on the theater's famous sidewalk. Well, after her death, he kept all her personal effects in his apartment at the Ambassador Hotel, where he lived for 35 years. Sid spent the last six months of his life at Cedar sinai Medical Center. 
but not because he was sick. Sid liked being at Cedars and he would leave to eat at various premier restaurants and then return to the hospital to sleep because the hospital was so conveniently located. Well, Sid died in 1950, leaving behind an enduring legacy in Hollywood, one of the world's most recognizable movie theaters and a very famous sidewalk in front of it. Film fans from all over the world still flock to the Chinese theater to see the sidewalk, but likely have no idea that it's believed to be haunted and surprisingly not haunted by Sid Grauman. The ghost believed to linger here is that of an actor named Victor Killian, who was killed nearby in 1979. Killian started out as a vaudeville actor, but came to Hollywood and achieved a modest amount of success as a character actor. Frequently cast as a villain, Killian suffered the loss of an eye while staging a fight scene with John Wayne in 1942. During the McCarthy era of the 1950s, Killian was blacklisted for his political beliefs. But because the Actor Equities Association refused to go along with the ban, Killian was able to earn a living by performing on stage. After Hollywood's blacklisting ended, he began doing guest roles on television series during the 1970s and is best known for his role as Grandpa in the series Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. After Killian's wife of 46 years, Daisy Johnson, died in 1961, he moved into an apartment about a block away from the Chinese theater. Killian lived alone and would often dine in local restaurants instead of cooking for himself. Well, on March 11, 1979, the 88-year-old actor went for a drink in a local bar. Police later speculated that he struck up a conversation with a stranger and that the two of them must have left the bar and gone to Killian's apartment. The actor's savagely beaten body was found the following day. His apartment had been ransacked and burglarized. Well, Killian's murder was never captured, but apparently Killian hasn't stopped looking for the man who killed him. It's said that his ghost still walks the route from the Chinese theater to his apartment, perhaps hoping that his murderer will someday return to the scene. While the old Warner Pacific Theater on Hollywood Boulevard has quieted somewhat in recent years, the stories about the ghost that haunts the place make it the perfect haunted Hollywood theater. When the Pacific opened, the ads for the new theater touted it as, quote, Hollywood's only regular price first-run theater. The Egyptian and the Chinese were on a two-a-day reserved seat policy and charging legit theater prices. The other houses in Hollywood were second-run venues. The theater also had a unique advertising medium. They used signs along the Pacific Red streetcar routes that told riders just how many minutes away they were from arriving at the theater's front door. Well, the theater opened in 1928 and the first film, The Glorious Betsy, was part of the advertised premiere of premieres. On the stage between screenings of the feature were the Kabbalist Review with Daphne Pollard, Harry Kelly, and the girls. And no, I don't know who they were either, but I do know that Al Jolson, who would be the first man to speak on film in the soon-to-be-released The Jazz Singer, was the master of ceremonies. In fact, the story of The Jazz Singer is tied directly to the haunted history of the theater. In the late 1920s, after a number of failures, the four Warner brothers, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack, risked everything they had on the production of this film. It was a risky venture. Not only would it be the first talking film, but it would force theaters to install sound systems in their auditoriums if they wanted to play it. 
The development of this uncertain film was taking place at the same time that Warner Brothers were hurrying to complete their new theater, which would be the largest in Hollywood. It was supposed to be finished before the release of The Jazz Singer, and it would be at this new venue that the film would premiere. While the movie was being made, Sam Warner personally supervised the installation of the sound system, all the while worrying over the rumors that were going around town about talking pictures being nothing more than a fad. Between construction delays at the theater and the production of the film, Sam barely had time to eat and sleep. It was said that when he realized the theater was not going to be ready for the opening, he stood in the lobby and cursed the place. The Jazz Singer didn't open in Hollywood. It opened in New York on October 6, 1927, to excited crowds and glowing reviews. Unfortunately, though, none of the Warner Brothers were able to attend. Just 24 hours before the premiere, Sam Warner suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died in Los Angeles. His brothers hurried home from New York before the movie premiere took place. The Warner Pacific Theater opened six months later with a film that nobody remembers, but at least Al Jolson was on hand to emcee the night. When it ended, a ceremony was held for Sam Warner, during which a plaque was placed in the lobby in his honor. Sam Warner couldn't physically be there that night, but everyone was assured he was with them in spirit. And he was, but not in the way that the well-wishers meant. You see, there was no way that a man like Sam Warner would leave this world with his work unfinished. Since that night in April 1928, sightings of Sam Warner have taken place at the theater and in the administration offices above it. People who live nearby report seeing him in the lobby, walking back and forth and looking frustrated and tired. Late one night in the 1970s, two men on a cleaning crew saw Sam walk across the lobby and enter the elevator. He stepped onto it, pushed the button, and then the door closed and the elevator went up. When a security guard made his rounds to the lobby, the startled men told him what they'd seen and then they quit their jobs on the spot. The guard, however, was not bothered by the story. He only wondered why a ghost would use an elevator. Good point. While Sam has not been seen in recent years, the security company that watches over the theater is familiar with his comings and goings. When things are quiet, they often hear him in the offices upstairs, moving chairs around, scratching on doors, and tapping on things to get attention. The elevator continued to operate by itself for many years till it was damaged in the Northridge earthquake of 1994. Some believe that perhaps Sam Warner is not seen as often as he once was because he believes his work here is finally completed. However, strange things do continue to occur. According to Paul Miller, the director of the USC Entertainment Technology Center Digital Cinema Lab, which began using the old theater after it closed, replacing old prints with digital projection, Sam Warner's ghost is still very much in evidence here. He wrote to me about 10 years ago and said, quote, while the elevator is no longer operational, things still do move around suspiciously. It seems Sam may have a propensity for high technology items. Cellular phones, PDAs, and digital cameras frequently turn up missing in the theater, never to be seen again. He also has an affinity for sharp objects and hand tools that mysteriously disappear and only occasionally show up again later in another location. In fact, two pairs of scissors went missing some months back only to be replaced later by another pair of scissors, not one of the missing pairs. Is this restless spirit that of Sam Warner, or could it be another former occupant in the theater, still tied to its past? At this point, no one knows, and the ghost is as silent as the films that were never supposed to have played here.
The Pantages Theater opened on Hollywood Boulevard in June of 1930. It was the grandest of the Art Deco style theaters to open in LA and was the last of the great movie palaces in Hollywood. Regrettably, the first movie to be shown here was The Floridora Girl, starring the untalented Marion Davies, who we talked about in our last episode. Well, in 1949, eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes purchased the Pantages as part of his national theater chain when he bought RKO Pictures. Hughes was truly an enigma as far as American personalities go. In his time, he was a daredevil aviator, movie maker, inventor, a playboy, and in the end, a sad and possibly insane recluse. It's been said that his days in Hollywood were the happiest of Hughes' life. This may explain why stories say he's returned to haunt the Pantages Theater. Howard Hughes Jr. was born in Texas in 1905, heir to the lucrative Hughes Tool Company empire, which had patented a bit for drilling of oil. In addition to a vast fortune, Hughes also inherited an interest in all things mechanical. As a boy, he invented a motorized bicycle from parts taken from his father's steam engine. Although an indifferent student, the brilliant young man was gifted when it came to aviation and mathematics. After his parents died, Hughes, then 19, took over the family business and became one of the wealthiest young men in the world. Hughes dropped out of Rice University shortly after his father's death and moved to Los Angeles, hoping to make a name for himself in the movie business. Hughes was first dismissed as a rich man's son trying to edge his way into the movies, but when his first two films, Everybody's Acting and Two Arabian Nights, were financial successes, people began to take notice. His next films, The Racket and The Front Page, were nominated for Academy Awards. Following this, Hughes spent what was then an unbelievable amount of his own money, $3.8 million, to make Hell's Angels, an epic flying adventure that he first filmed as a silent movie and then remade with sound, became another huge hit. He produced another hit, the original Scarface, in 1932. One of his best-known films was The Outlaw, which turned Jane Russell into a movie star. Hughes designed a special bra for Russell to wear in the film, highlighting her ample breasts, which of course infuriated the censors. Hughes was a notorious ladies' man who spent time with many famous women, including Billy Dove, Betty Davis, Ava Gardner, Olivia de Havilland, Katherine Hepburn, and Jean Tierney. Jean Harlow accompanied him to the premiere of Hell's Angels, but Hughes' personal assistant, Noah Dietrich, wrote many years later that the relationship was strictly professional. Hughes personally disliked Harlow. Dietrich also wrote that Hughes genuinely liked and respected Jane Russell, but never sought a romantic involvement with her. According to Russell's autobiography, however, Hughes once tried to bet her after a party. Russell refused him, and Hughes promised it would never happen again. The two maintained a friendship for many years. Hughes also remained good friends with Jean Tierney. When Tierney's daughter, Daria, was born deaf-blind and severely handicapped due to Tierney being exposed to German measles during her pregnancy, he saw to it that she received the best medical care and paid all of her expenses for life. Hughes had been married when he first came to Hollywood, but his wife's loneliness led her to go back to Texas and file for divorce. In 1957, Hughes married actress Jean Peters, but this marriage was also troubled. Peters filed for divorce from Hughes in 1971 after the two had been living apart for many years. She accepted a lifetime alimony payment of $70,000 a year and waived all claims to the Hughes estate. 
Hughes never spoke ill of Jean and did not insist upon a confidentiality agreement as a condition of their divorce. Regardless, she refused to discuss her life with Hughes and declined several lucrative offers from big-name publishers and biographers. Jean would only state that she had not seen Hughes for several years before their divorce because his psychological problems forced him to stay in a separate room, talking with her only by phone. In 1948, Hughes gained control of RKO, a struggling major Hollywood studio. During his tenure, RKO suffered as a result of his rather bizarre management style. Just weeks after he took over the studio, he fired three-fourths of the staff and shut the place down for six months while he investigated the politics of the remaining employees. Completed pictures were set back for reshooting if he felt his star, especially female, was not properly presented, or if a film's anti-communist politics were not sufficiently clear. Hughes let go of the RKO theaters in 1953 when the federal government filed an antitrust suit against all the studios, preventing them from making movies and owning theaters too. With the sale of the profitable theater chain, the film studio suffered even further. Hughes was sued several times by RKO's minority stockholders for financial misconduct and mismanagement, and the lawsuits became an increasing nuisance. Eager to be rid of the distraction, Hughes offered to buy out all the other stockholders at a cost of more than $24 million. By the end of 1954, he had near total control of the RKO. Six months later, Hughes sold the studio to General Tire and Rubber Company for $25 million. This marked the end of his 25-year involvement in motion pictures, and although he nearly destroyed a major Hollywood studio, he walked away from Hollywood with a profit. After his run in the movie business, Hughes returned to his real love, aviation. Even during his Hollywood years, Hughes developed and flew a variety of aircraft, including a Boeing Stratoliner, the Lockheed L-49 Constellation, and the XF-11 prototype plane, which nearly killed him in July of 1946. Hughes was piloting the experimental Army reconnaissance plane over LA when an oil leak caused one of the counter-rotating propellers to reverse pitch. Hughes tried to save the craft by landing it on the Los Angeles Country Club golf course, but seconds before he could reach it, the XF-11 fell from the sky and crashed into a Beverly Hills neighborhood that surrounded the country club. After hitting three houses, the fuel tanks exploded, setting fire to the aircraft in a nearby home. Hughes lay seriously injured beneath the burning XF-11 until he was rescued by Marine Master Sergeant William L. Durkin, who happened to be in the area visiting France. Hughes sustained significant injuries in the crash, including a crushed collarbone, 24 broken ribs, and numerous third-degree burns. But as soon as he recovered, Hughes was back in the sky. His most controversial aircraft was the H-4 Hercules, nicknamed the Spruce Goose. The aircraft was originally contracted by the U.S. government for use in World War II as a way to transport troops and equipment across the Atlantic that steered clear of German U-boats. In 1947, it was the largest aircraft ever built, weighing 190 tons, but it was not completed until just after the end of the war. By then, it was no longer needed. The Spruce Goose only flew one time. It lifted off the water and flew for one mile with Hughes at the controls on November 2nd, 1947. The plane, which cost millions to build, never flew again. In 1939, at the urging of Jack Fry, president of TWA Airlines, Hughes quietly purchased a majority share of TWA stock and took control of the airline. 
After World War II, Hughes found himself under investigation by the U.S. Senate because he'd failed to deliver the H-4 Hercules as promised, but he believed that his ownership and plans for TWA were what were really behind the investigation. Pan American World Airways, which we'd later know as Pan Am, the chief, Juan Tripp, wanted to monopolize air travel and had influenced powerful Maine Senator Owen Brewster to propose legislation securing Pan Am as the only American airline allowed to fly overseas at a time when Hughes planned TWA service to Europe. Hughes turned the hearings into an attack on Brewster and exposed his questionable business dealings with Pan Am. He also later helped defeat his re-election bid by pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into the campaign of Brewster's opponent. During the glory days of passenger aviation, both airways would carry travelers all over the world, but Hughes didn't last long at TWA. In 1960, he was forced out of the company, although he still owned 78% of it. He battled for control for the next six years until a federal court finally forced him to sell his shares. The court cited a conflict of interest due to his ownership of both TWA and his Hughes Aircraft Company. The sale netted him almost $547 million in 1966 dollars. Um, that's the equivalent of $4.3 billion today. Unfortunately, most of Hughes' pioneer efforts in the film business and in aviation have been forgotten by those who only remember him for his eccentric behavior and bizarre reclusive life. Hughes was likely a victim of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and an addiction to prescription drugs. His mother may have also suffered from OCD and she first provided him with the means of escaping social situations and pressures with illness as an excuse. As a young boy, he wanted to attend summer camp at a time when the public feared the spread of polio. His mother wanted assurances that he would be protected, but when the assurances never came, she kept him home. Well, at one point in his childhood, he stayed out of school for most of a year after he developed a form of paralysis that was never diagnosed and which disappeared on its own a few months later, right after school ended for the year. Hughes was one of the most visible men in America, but he eventually vanished from public view. Although tabloids and magazines continued to follow rumors of his behavior and his whereabouts, he was usually reported to be terminally ill, mentally unstable, or even dead. When the 1930s, friends later reported that Hughes was obsessed with peas, one of his favorite foods, and he used a special fork to sort them out by size. While working on The Outlaw, Hughes became obsessed with a flaw in one of Jane Russell's costume blouses, claiming that the fabric bunched along a seam and made it look as though she had two nipples on each breast. He was so worried about this that he wrote a detailed, multi-page memo to the crew about how to fix the problem. His fixation on trivial details and odd mood swings led many film crews to wonder if the movies they were working on would ever be completed. Once Hughes decided to purchase all the restaurant chains and luxury hotels that had been founded within the borders of his home state of Texas. He bought scores of them and ownership was placed in trust and then he resold them a short time later. Thanks to his injuries that he sustained during aviation mishaps, especially after the XF-11 crash, Hughes spent most of his life in pain. He eventually became addicted to painkillers, including codeine and several other prescription drugs. The addiction compounded the symptoms of Hughes' OCD and brought on new ones, like insisting on using tissues to pick up objects so that he could protect himself from germs. He would go through dozens of boxes of tissues each week. And these weren't the only things. He once watched the 1968 film Ice Station Zebra 150 times in a row. 
In later years, Hughes always had a barber on call, but only had his hair cut and his nails trimmed once a year. He also had several doctors available to him at all times, but he rarely saw them and never followed their advice. Toward the end, his inner circle was largely comprised of Mormons, and they were referred to as the Mormon Mafia, because he considered them absolutely trustworthy, even though Hughes was not and never was a member of the church. Hughes was also obsessed with using every trick conceivable to avoid paying taxes to the government. Oh boy. In the early years of Hughes Aircraft, he attempted to move the company from Southern California to Nevada to take advantage of Nevada's low tax rates. He later donated all his stock in Hughes Aircraft to a medical charity that he established, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, thus turning the military contractor into a tax-exempt charity. He was also able to keep his managers working for him for many years by promising them large sums of money at the end of their careers. In order to give them money without them paying taxes, he arranged with them to publicly criticize them at the time of their retirement. Then the manager would sue Hughes in court for public defamation. A settlement in court was not subject to taxes, and he arranged this for many of his best employees. After living in California for many years, he came up with the idea of living in hotels so that he would not have to legally declare residency in any state, thus avoiding the payment of personal income taxes. Shortly after he devised this plan, though, legislation was passed requiring payment of income taxes by anyone living in a certain state for 180 days or longer. After that, Hughes would live in a hotel for 179 days and then move to another one, staying on the move every six months or so. His creative efforts were so successful that even after his death, the states of California and Texas were unable to collect inheritance taxes from his estate, since it could not be proven he was a legal residence of either one. Hughes stayed on the move for the last 10 years of his life, living in penthouse suites of hotels in Beverly Hills, Boston, Las Vegas, Bahamas, Vancouver, London, Nicaragua, Acapulco, and many other locations. In November 1966, he moved into the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. He ended up buying the hotel in early 1967. Its eighth floor became the headquarters for his empire and the ninth floor penthouse became Hughes' personal residence. Between 1966 and 1968, Hughes bought several other hotels and casinos which had previously been owned by the mob. He also bought several local television stations because as a chronic insomniac, he always wanted to have something to watch during the early morning hours. Hughes had spent nearly $300 million on his many properties during his Las Vegas spending spree. As the owner of several major businesses in Los Angeles, Hughes wielded enormous political and economic power in Nevada, was able to influence elections in that state and beyond. In the 1960s and early 1970s, Hughes became obsessed with the underground nuclear tests that were then taking place in Nevada. He was terrified of the risks posed by residual nuclear radiation from the tests, and he worked hard to try to halt the testing. When the testing began, despite Hughes' efforts, the detonations were so powerful that they caused the desert end to sway on its foundation. Finally, in two separate last-ditch efforts, Hughes instructed his representatives to offer $1 million bribes to Presidents Lyndon B. Johnson and Richard M. Nixon, begging them to stop the tests. Well, his aides never offered the bribes. They just told Hughes that they'd been turned down. Well, following the tests, Hughes made it clear in his personal correspondence that the nuclear detonations led directly to a self-imposed exile from the United States, which ended only with his death. 
Hughes lived in Nicaragua and then in the penthouse of the Xanadu Princess Resort on Grand Bahama Island, which he purchased for the last four years of his life. Hughes died on April 5th, 1976, while on an aircraft that was traveling from his penthouse in the Bahamas to the Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. His seclusion, drug use, and physical condition made him almost unrecognizable from the tall, handsome figure that was well-known in the newspapers and magazines of the past. His hair, beard, and fingernails had grown grotesquely long, and he weighed only 90 pounds. The FBI had to resort to fingerprints to identify his body. A subsequent autopsy showed that kidney failure was his cause of death, but he was in terrible condition. X-rays revealed that broken hypodermic needles were embedded in his arms, and he suffered from severe malnutrition. Hughes was buried in Glenwood Cemetery in Houston next to his parents, but the strangeness surrounding Howard Hughes didn't end with his death. About three weeks after Hughes died, a handwritten will was found on the desk of an official of the Mormon LDS Church in Salt Lake City. The so-called Mormon will gave $1.56 billion to various charities, nearly $470 million to the upper management of Hughes' companies and his aides, $156 million to his first cousin, William Loomis, $156 million split equally between two ex-wives, and then $156 million to a gas station owner named Melvin Dumar. Initially, Dumar claimed to have no knowledge about the will, but changed his story when his fingerprints were found on the envelope. He soon had a very peculiar story to tell. He claimed that late one evening in December 1967, he found a dirty and disheveled old man along US Highway 95, about 150 miles north of Las Vegas. The man asked for a ride and Dumar dropped him off at the Sands Hotel. As he was getting out of the car, he told Melvin that his name was Howard Hughes. Melvin then claimed that a few days after Hughes' death, a mysterious man showed up at his gas station and gave him an envelope that contained the handwritten will. Not sure what to do with it, or even if it was genuine, he delivered it to the LDS office. After a trial that lasted for seven months, the Mormon will was rejected by the Nevada courts as a forgery. In June 1978, it was declared that Hughes had died without a valid will. In 1983, Hughes' $2.5 billion estate was split among 22 cousins. Melvin was discounted by the public as a phony and an opportunist, despite his claims about what really happened on the Nevada highway that night. It was a sad and sordid end to a man who single-handedly influenced the history of the United States and Hollywood, which brings us back to the Pantages. After Howard Hughes acquired the theater, he set up two offices on the second floor, where theater circuit mogul Alexander Pantages and his sons had once had their own offices. Hughes used these offices whenever he was in Hollywood, but abandoned them in 1953, when he was forced to sell off the theater chain. In spite of this, many believe he's never completely cut his ties with the theater. In 1967, Pacific Theaters bought the Pantages and later, in conjunction with the Nederlander Corporation, restored the place to its original splendor. Staff members who have since worked in the second floor offices often report feeling a powerful, eerie presence, especially in the conference room, which had once been Howard Hughes's office. Carla Rubin, an executive assistant at the theater, noted that, quote, there's something about the temperature of this room, a coldness. I often feel a wind go past me when there's no air conditioning on. She and other employees frequently heard bumping and banging sounds that had no explanation, as well as the clicking of brass handles, like those on desk drawers. Occasionally, a cold wind would blow through the executive suites, and when it did, it brought with it the faint aroma of cigars. 
Rubin also stated that she twice caught sight of an apparition, a tall man she believed to be Howard Hughes. Dressed in modest business clothing from the early 1950s, he was seen rounding a corner in the remodeled suite where the original office door had once been located. But if Hughes does walk at the Pantages, he doesn't walk there alone. There are also tales of a singing woman that dates back to around 1932. That year, a female patron died in the mezzanine during a film. Ever since then, when the auditorium is dark and quiet, the voice of a woman can sometimes be heard singing in the silence. The voice occurs no matter what time of day it is, and in the early 2000s, was picked up on a microphone during the stage setting for a live performance. Perhaps the spookiest encounter at the Pantages occurred when a wardrobe woman was the last to leave the theater one night. As she walked along the side exit in the auditorium, the emergency lights in the aisles went out. Left to stumble around in the darkness, she became confused and was unable to find her way. Then from out of the blackness around her, a large firm hand gripped her by the elbow and led her to the door. She opened it, letting in some outside light and turned to thank her rescuer for his assistance. She was alone. There was no one else in the theater. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I've, I've, I've realized you get fucked up a lot on um, alliterations, yeah. which I think is not normal. But no, like, and I put them in there on purpose, well, and yeah. then I can't say them. So <laughs> I can write them, just can't say them. Write them, can't say them. Yeah. I mean, no, I get it. <laughs> Oof. Is there anything else we need to do? Talk about? We're we good to go? Uh, I guess. I guess? All I right. I guess we're running. This feels, I don't know, it just feels like I know. weird. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings Podcast, a show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. You know, I was thinking about that season five thing, uh-huh. and it's like, I feel like we're like The Bachelor or something. Because, what do you mean? Well, because they have fake seasons. We're in like season 32, and it's like... You've been on like eight years, you know? <laughs> right, right. So we haven't actually been, you know, five years of this. Well, yeah, well, but we have like themes, it's I guess. three and a half, four years, um, something fuck. like that. How long I, has this been? I don't even been? know. Maybe three? Well, every now and three? So every now know. and then it pops up on my Facebook timeline when uh, right before I went to meet with you yeah, and Lisa. Yeah. And that's, I always, I, I actually, I text it to you guys and I say yeah, like, happy yeah. friend anniversary. Right, or, right, but right. 
I don't know. I how can't long remember is, how long it's been. It's but. been a while. Well, the only the only uh, the only season that um, we're doing that might actually last a year mm-hmm. is this one. Yes, <laughs> we've actually every other week we've actually got enough oh episodes to oh last boy. for a year, and it will um, if so, you really yeah. want it to. It's just gonna keep <laughs> yeah. going. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, like people keep asking me, you know, how many episodes it's gonna be. One, I never so, know. No. And then two, you just keep going well man. it's like, you know i um i was looking at the list when i was putting together this episode uh-huh. um not the list that you have in your hand right now but i'll talk they, about that in a minute yeah the, the list of you know the uh, the entire season and i'm thinking hmm that one might end up being two i don't know How, uh, what do but, you think right now if you had to ballpark it uh knowing that from, that's going to change from where we are right now uh, as far as what i've got planned i've got 20 more episodes planned after this one. Jesus age. Okay. <laughs> so I'm excited for that. And and what Troy was just referencing, um, he finally gave me the list of the best horror, horror films of the eighties. Um, it's for our Halloween episode. And there's what? 40 things on here. Yeah. About like, 40. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it's going to be, so you'll need to watch all of those the in long, the next two weeks. The so. longest one we've ever done. Yeah. And I, I went out ahead of it and I was like, Hey, I actually want to watch all these. So like, let me yeah. know. And I've been bugging you for weeks. I was like, I just give me even like well, a little I know. hint. And, and really I didn't have it done. I, I know. Just but finished. It. I just wanted like four or five to get yeah. out ahead of it, and fucking <laughs> yeah. here I am. Well, yeah, but you've seen some of those. I have. So, I have seen a lot. Yeah, you've seen quite a few of those. And then some list. of them, I'm like, never heard of these. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, I can't. I didn't even want to say them, but like, yeah, I haven't heard of some. Of, but there's some of them on here too that I'm like, I needed to watch this, and I haven't. So yeah. I'm really sure. excited. Now you've got. That. Yeah, now you got an excuse. And also like. You've literally crossed some of these out. I did. I I went. I had some second thoughts on some of them. I thought I'm going to overwhelm Cody with this list, and a couple of them I put on there because I felt like I should, but I didn't really love them that much. Right. So I just crossed them off and figured, yeah, forget. Even even your crossing out looks like (laughs) it looks like fake. Like your handwriting is so nice that it looks like it's a fake. It looks like you copied and pasted this, but I know you physically did this um it's so interesting <laughs> and when i've actually seen your handwriting too i've said like you're such an author like it's just <laughs> it's very interesting um okay so um it is i'm just gonna tell everybody saturday october 3rd yes um sober september's done right for me right just want to let, let yeah. that know um also um cbd dude i'm telling you <laughs> it is it is honestly like i've i've been very curious about like what that was like, you know, and, um, I'm, I'm very open about a lot of things on here, but I'm a very anxious person, but like CBD is, it's kind of changed my life in the last like two weeks. Like Hmm. it helps me fall asleep. It helps me not be anxious. I don't get like high from it. Yeah. Right. Um, and I have this little pin that's like, you're not going to start like a multi mark level marketing company or something. You're not going to start. Troy, I empower you (laughs) to give you the tools, man. Um, (laughs) no. So, but it, but it's really interesting because like this, I have this, uh, I have this little pin. that's like, it's like 34% THC, 45% CBD. And at first I was like, that's way too much THC. Like, I don't, I don't want to be high. It's dude, it's not at all. And it just, it helps me calm down. And like, I just want to say anybody that's like looking for something that might be able to help them out. Like I would say, check out CBD. Like I exercise all the time and, um, I'm, I'm tried like everything I can to like kind of feel a little bit more sane, but like the CBD dude, it's really been helping. Like, I just want to put that out there. If if anybody else, yeah, if anybody else feels like me, uh, check that out, see what's going on. Um, okay. So that's, 
update on my life. What, 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 what do we have going on? What's well, going on with you? Right now, it's nothing but work. Um, October, yeah, this, man. This episode's going to come out uh, middle of the month, so which will put us about halfway through the Halloween season. Yeah. But I kind of feel like we're almost halfway there when we're actually recording this today because we've already done so many things. Sure. And this actual weekend, you know, something last night, something today, uh, this has been a very weird year. Yeah. Um, Everything that we do, I feel like we're kind of just taking it a week at a time. Yeah, because I mean, it's all you can we, do. We never know what we're going to have to change sure. um, or update or switch around. Um, but I, one thing I will say is that for the most part, people have been really cool about the changes we've had. Been rolling make. with the punches. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I think I think at this point, um, you know, I was talking to Kaylin today and you know, at this point, there isn't anybody whose life hasn't been disrupted in some way by this pandemic. Yeah. Everyone. And I, I talk to Kaylin every day, too, yeah. and, and I, yeah. I'm just like, God bless you. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's life has been interrupted or disrupted or changed or something. So people, it's not like it was back at the end of March where people were getting mad at us for postponing things, you know? Sure. Um, now now it's understand. like, now they're just happy that we can do something. Even, stuff going on. even if we have to change it, that's okay. We'll be there, right. you know? So, you know, that's been, that's been pretty great. But, you know, a lot of the stuff, you know, is already filled up. Um, you know, our, uh, our Decatur tours have been sold out for a couple of weeks now already. Um, we've had... Um, a lot of different uh, events that have gone on already that are past. Several things are selling out. We've still got our evening with dinners. We've got only got a few of those left. Um, by the time you hear this, we'll even have less. Uh, but we did just post, or by the time you hear this, we will have just posted some of our events for winter and spring. Yeah. So there are some things coming down the road. Um, we've added some St. Louis exorcism stuff, and I'm going to give everybody a hint here. Um, and I've told a few people this already, but if that's something, one of the events that you've kind of wanted to do and you haven't had a chance to do it yet, and you'd like to do it soon, um, we've got one that right now in, in, on November 14th, which doesn't have a lot of spots left, but we're going to have another one in January. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm telling you this is because on October 27th, uh, I took part in a documentary that we filmed during the pandemic about the St. Louis exorcism, and it's going to be one of the shock docs on the Travel Channel. What? On the 27th. Why so, am I just not hearing about this? Well, I told you about it, but I don't. I didn't have the dates or anything uh, until okay. just recently. I was like, oh, Troy's going to be in another ghost. Yeah, thing. cool. No, no, no. So um, that'll be out on the 27th, and I have a feeling that whatever we have left will fill up. It'll spike after yeah. that. Yeah. So um, if you if that's something that you're hearing this. On October 14th, and that's something you thought you might like to do. Sign I'd up go now. Ahead and get signed up. That's amazing. But was it fun? It was fun. I mean, for what we could do. I yeah. mean, it was mostly just in-studio stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't on location this time. Sure. I mean, I've already done several documentaries, but I think this one um, should be pretty good. I even watched the one that they had on uh, a couple weeks ago about the Warrens, mm -hmm. um, and they did call them on some of their BS. I was going to say, how, I yeah, enjoyed, how was it? Actually, it was... You know, it, it, it kind of presented it the way you would expect, that they were people who were sincere and believed in some of these things, but yet were, you know, 
uh, power mad publicity hounds. You know, people um, people ask me about that too. They're yeah. like, they're like, hey, how, like, don't you like love the Conjuring movies? And I'm like, well, yeah, the movies yeah, are fun. I'm like, but, yes and know, no. Well, they're cartoon characters. I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, it's the characters that are in those movies are not to be mistaken for the real people, right? And I, but I, know. and I hate to like be that fucking guy, I know, you know, I know. where it's yeah, like, no, well, me too. yes. And so I'm like, okay, how much do you really want to know about you know how I feel about? But this? it wasn't a bad documentary, yeah, um, at all. That's and, awesome. Um, so I'm hoping that this the, well, I, I mean I haven't seen it yet do you, so I you, don't know you don't know I, where we can find it yet it'll or, be on the travel channel the travel channel yeah. okay cool uh, but it'll be part of that shock doc series they're doing nice fall, so. I'm excited yeah we'll see how it goes so I'm s- always cautiously optimistic well sure I mean and yeah. like also I can see like you. I guess you've done I mean I've never done anything like this but you have like I'm guessing Have has it ever happened where like they cut your words and like take things so out of context. Um, the only like, show that ever did that was. Um, do you want to say it? I don't care. Uh, okay. Scariest places on earth, which isn't on anymore. Sure. It's not. It's not to be confused with the one that was on the Travel Channel. This was on. This was like the one hosted by Linda Blair. I mean, uh, like okay. way back. I thought in you the, and Linda were cool. No, oh, we we are. I <laughs> right. didn't. That's not when I met her, but sure. um, she was just the voiceover. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, this was back in the late '90s when we filmed that. It was. Not, I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, it was. I know, right? It wasn't the uh, terif- <laughs> most terrifying places. There you in go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was scariest places on earth, and yeah, they did cut some things up about Alton, uh, about you know. Made the it limestone? sound like yes. Made it sound like I endorsed the idea that you know all the haunted places in town were built using bricks from the prison, which is obviously not, not true. true. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, that was the only one that I kind of had a beef with. Well, I've talked so. to you about that too. It's like that's one of the reasons that I was down to do this in the first podcast place. with you right. because because like you told me about that you're like i yeah. wouldn't like endorse like some dumb shit that wasn't true <laughs> right, and like you're right. like i had nothing to lose and like <laughs> but also nothing to gain and i was like i i want to just have real conversations about you know like you can just tell me like hey yeah this would be really cool if this happened but it just fucking didn't mm-hmm. you know like and and that's fine and that's and we've I'm, done that all along i think yeah, there yeah. a lot of this stuff we've tried to keep doing that as yes. we've gone through you know a lot of the New Orleans stuff and you know things that, right. you know that'd be a this this is a great story but I still love it's just a story. and I also tell the story too about um what was it uh the place right next to like where Big Muddy Pub used to be and the the yoga studio now and the Irish place that's there now and you talked oh, about yeah, yeah. the woman opening the door and seeing the little girl right, in a right, dress right. and like I tell that story all the time like for people that don't know basically there was this place must be haunted by this little girl. And this woman opened the door, saw a little girl on stairs, freaked out, left. And then eventually on a tour, somebody told Troy like, Hey, so that actually happened. But that was like my niece. Like there was a real little girl there um, that happened to be there that day. And like, I love that we can like, debunk that kind of stuff right, like it's even more right. fun you know? i know it makes it a lot of the stories even more interesting exactly exactly but like i'm still i'm still searching for ghosts every day every day, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every day i'm trying um okay cool well well you, anyway yeah yes, that's all yeah, i know i was gonna say is to wrap that up if you go to altonhauntings.com you'll see that stuff perfect um and we've got you know the evening with dinners and things that are coming up for 2021 all of that's on there and our big free dead of winter event which we'll talk more about later yep. but um, and it gets a little more wintry, I guess, or something, a little closer to it's it. It's kind of cold today uh, yeah, it for is, the first time. Yeah, I feel like I'm we'll, getting we'll, in the mood. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So we also are adding this coming week, um, which you guys, by the time you hear this, mm-hmm. will have already been added. But we have a couple of ghost hunts that we just added for um, the Lincoln Theater in Decatur, which oh, we shit. haven't been there for ghost hunts in... 
five, six, seven years. Something Can you like that. guarantee Lincoln will be there? No, Abraham Lincoln <laughs> will not be there. It's just his name. But um, I will say that we have had a lot of experiences there yeah. as far as you know it being a very haunted place. And mm-hmm. they're in the middle of... You know, renovating and remodeling. Oh, so perfect timing. So that's a it's perfect timing It'll for that. Stir so, up some shit. Yeah. So we're going to be posting those uh, coming up here pretty quick. Um, okay. Cool. So let's dive into some listener reviews. We've had some um, some really nice listener reviews. We've also had some really not nice. Really? Listen- I haven't Wait, even looked. Lately. I haven't been sending them to you. Um, and also sometimes they're on like platforms that aren't iTunes, but oh. I still get them emailed to me, and I'm like. I see. Know what? Never mind. I'm not gonna not gonna mention that one. Um, it doesn't matter. I don't really care. It's I know. Free podcast, I know. So, it's hilarious. Yeah. So this one's titled "History is First, uh, Frightening Next." Which dot dot dot. I can't see the rest of the uh, title, but it's from Domino Z Z Z Z X X X. Great. Um, it has been tuning in since St. Louis episodes and was fascinated by Limp and Exorcist episodes. A transplant moving to an area from MN and living in downtown St. Louis. I found the Limp detail incredible and a travel back in time. Um, on to the axe murderer. This is frightening and looking forward to more. I binge these on road trips and it passed the time so quickly. Thank you. My crew and I will be looking up some of your in-person events and tours uh, in the future as well as buying some of your books. Well, thank you so much. This last one uh, is titled Co-Host Dynamics and Research is Amazing. And then it's dot, 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 and it cuts off. This is from Princess uh, Liana. Liana? I don't know. Um, This is definitely different than the usual true crime podcast I listen to. And it took me a few episodes to really get hooked. But the storytelling that takes place as the intro is wicked detailed and honestly spooked me a few times. I really love the dynamic uh, both co-hosts have. They're fun, but they still stick to the topic. I give five stars because the research is top notch. Love you guys. Well, thank you. We love you too. I think the research is okay. Um, that <laughs> the conversation is what. No, no, it's it's great. I, 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 I don't know. I appreciate that. And like the fact that somebody even like two people said like, oh, you have like a good little like dynamic going on. Like that's <laughs> that's nice. Um, that that makes me happy. Um, are you ready to sure. dive in? Sure. Okay. Every good theater has a ghost. Right. We've talked about this a yeah, lot. Yeah, we have. And yeah. I'm really excited to like really dive into it. So you, you mentioned this a little bit, but let's talk about what is it about a theater that attracts a ghost? I mean, there's so much emotion right. and bullshit and like things that go in like people like, I mean, you're you're putting your life and your, your soul into these like characters and things. And there's like so much stress and stress and emotion and stuff in this one building and so many people coming in and out and experiencing so many things. So like. If there's ever going to be a place aside from like, I don't know, like a war, you know, sure. place like this hospital is hospital. Yeah, this, like this is kind of where it's going to be. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's why you have so many haunted theaters across the country. I mean, there are just a zillion of them, you know, is and I think that the the energy that is expended in the theater, you know, can attract ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, it can cause a residual type haunting, all sure. the things that happen there. And there can be other things that happen too that would maybe cause a, you know some kind of impression to be left behind. You you also have you know the staff members, the actors, the stage managers, the directors. All Those these are people, people I'm more who are like curious absolutely about. Absolutely devoted to the theaters because yeah. that's one thing that I've learned many many times over the years being involved in stuff with you know theater groups or whatever and old theaters and are the people who just become 
obsessed with the places. And, um, you know, it, it, if we, if we do have a choice of whether or not we stay behind, mm -hmm. you know, and these people had a choice and, you know, where would they stay? Well, they'd probably stay at that theater, you know? And so, you know, it may be their ghosts that people see. And then, as I also mentioned that theater people are, are they're, in their own little world. They're a different you know? breed. So, um, yeah. you know, either they, you know, make the whole thing up, you know, not purposely as a hoax, but just because they're just a little more dramatic than the rest of us are. And of course. So every single little thing that happens maybe seems like a ghost, you know? Um, and then it's not to say that, you know, the stories, none of the stories are true, but I think you take all those different ingredients and throw them in the pot. Yeah. And so now you've got five or six different reasons why a theater might be haunted. It's really not a surprise that there are a lot of different ones. That and, makes sense. you know, and by putting, you know, when you've got, you know, theaters in Hollywood, it just seemed like that, you know, I mean, what the kind of theater place. is it going to be? It's probably, I mean, there probably are, you know, legit theaters and old vaudeville houses that are haunted, but you know, it's Hollywood. We got to talk about the movies. Hollywood. So movie theaters. That's what it all. Yes. Comes down to. Okay. Um, okay. So 1872, Edward Moybridge. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. Creates the first moving uh, first movie by placing. Sorry, 12. I had scrolled it. No, it's cool. It's, it creates uh, the first movie by placing twelve cameras, basically on a racetrack. Um, and then the first film created for motion picture photography was invented in eighteen fifty five by George Eastman and William eighty five. 1885. 85. Okay, yeah, sorry. It was so, after that. Got it. Okay, so by George Eastman and William H. Walker, um, and then eventually, like the process is advanced. Like what happens, like technology gets released, and people are like, "Hey, let's like you know sure. run with this." So uh, the Great Train Robbery. Um, so I know that this is like it's like a Michael Crichton book, and like there's like a bunch yeah, of people it's, like it's not, done it's this. It's nothing right? to do with any that's, of that's, those. That's different. Yeah, that's it's just completely different. I've heard this of this for a, so long. Well, the the Great Train Robbery, this original film mm -hmm. is um, it's a cowboy, it's a western. Right, um, right, right. In fact, if you uh, if you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, yes, at the beginning of it, when you see that black and white clips that are running through, and okay. there's the old cowboy that points his pistol at the camera and pulls mm -hmm. the trigger, and the smoke comes out. That's a clip from The Great Train. Okay, interesting. It's only 11 minutes long, but mm -hmm. it was really the first film that told a story. Sure. I mean, because most of the movies that were being made at that time, I, and I wouldn't even call them movies. Yeah. Um, they were just these tiny little, little shorts. shorts yeah. And, you know, you would come in, you'd pay a nickel, and you'd sit for a couple of hours and watch a whole the bunch of these things. Right. You sit and watch a whole bunch of these things, and it would be like... You know, somebody going to the park, somebody riding a bicycle. It was just, a, it was a novelty just experience. Just boring. <laughs> yeah, but but it wasn't boring to people at the time. It probably because, blew their minds. Right, because it, yeah. they'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, people had seen photographs, but they'd never seen photographs that moved. It's a moving picture. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it was, um, it was a big deal at the time to people. And I mean, that's what ended up building the movie industry is by the the popularity of Nickelodeons. And, you know, believe it or not, with the dawn of moving pictures, you already had, you know, had little horror movies of, you know, skeletons appearing and disappearing in a puff of smoke. Sure, yeah. And, you know, you had uh, little kind of very light porn you know, already being made, guys right. chasing the maid around, spanking her, you know, butt. And I mean, just, yeah, things. just, I mean, it was stuff that you could, you know, go in and hand crank. So to speak, yeah. 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 Pandemic. Yeah. Um, and you know, that kind of stuff. But so people were, you know, really interested in this. This was something sure. that 
they'd never seen before. And, and as we've talked about in other episodes about different things, you know, it's, it was like, you know, the, the, the craze behind spiritualism or the craze mm-hmm. behind the telegraph sure. and anything that comes along that's new. And, 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 you know, nothing's changed. I mean, it's still like that today right. when something new comes along. I mean, look when, you know, when, you know, TikToks, I mean, it's stuff I well, don't even understand. It's when a, it started, you know, people have gone crazy over this. It's, or crazy it's so over amazing that, because you, know? you, you introduced this technology. Like I was, I was going to bring up like TikTok. I was gonna, probably going to say Instagram or Facebook or something, yeah, but like, same thing. You, you, but you yeah. put this out in the world and then you do not control it. No, you see what happens. Like people innovate and build on that. And it's like the craziest that shit. That and was it something so quick. Thomas Edison couldn't wrap his head around. Well, and he couldn't that was control the problem. It. He couldn't control it, he couldn't and he wanted to control it. it, so he kept suing everybody right. who was building on his technology. Right. That was the beginning. I mean, that was the the wars between him and Westinghouse and Tesla and all these things. Is he? You know, he wanted to control all of these things that he had wrought. Right. You know, and he, you, can't, you can't. You know, once well, it's you out shouldn't. of your hands, once it's free into the world, you can't control it. And that's what happened with movies. And so they, you know, went from being Nickelodeons and, and little, little sitting in a cramped little room watching this to people telling stories because now it was a new form of art. Right. You know, and by the 1920s, you know, I mean, they used it, the government used it for propaganda and all kinds of stuff sure. because it was... Well, it's the same way that the government or whoever, political parties, use Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, of course. They use it for propaganda for their own side. Yeah. It was the same thing. Same kind of technology use of of spreading a message. Mm -hmm. You know, but by the 20s now, people were really realizing they could make a lot of money doing this. And in our last episode, we talked about the studios, and that it's all pretty much around the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, all these guys that started these movie studios, most of them were guys who had invested in Nickelodeons yeah. and realized how important this was going to be sure. and were forward thinking enough to realize I've got to get out ahead of this. I would imagine it's like the, it's like the next wave of like the people that realized the printing press was going to be a big thing, sure. you know, oh, but yeah, like absolutely. this was like a little, you know, absolutely. Step farther. It's the same, it is the same kind of thing. And you know, it's just like when things turned to sound, I mean, when we talk about Jack Warner sure. in this episode and uh, the Warner brothers were, they knew there were four How, of them. I learned yes, that. Yes. Yeah, and they and the Warner sister Dot. I, I oh, I didn't know that. No, I'm kidding. Oh, remember the remember the show Animaniacs? Fuck yeah, I remember. Yeah, the show. well, that's the that was supposed to be the the Warner Brothers and the Warner sister Dot. Oh, that was the Animaniacs. Okay, okay. And I didn't so know that. it's always I, that always makes me laugh. And I almost put that into the episode. I sure. almost said, you know, I named all the and then said, and don't forget Sister Dot. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> right. do it. I okay, thought, well, I gotcha, okay, gotcha. that's it's not real. Don't don't do that just because you thought Animaniacs is funny. That's hilarious. Uh, but, um, you know, they they saw sound going to be and took a huge risk. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he worked himself to death. Well, and they didn't literally. even get to premiere that no. one film. We'll no. talk about that. Yeah, we'll, that, we'll get that there. Later. We'll get there in a minute. Um, but, anyway, know. Okay, no. So super interesting. Okay, so so when the war ends, uh, the United States began a cultural boom that saw the rise of Hollywood, uh, home motion pictures in America. Movie stars. The we bir- talked about all that last The birth last of the time. movie star. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's that's so interesting to me because, like, it seems now, like, yeah, looking back, like, of course, but, like, then it's like, this was like a new idea, oh, yeah. like a marketing yeah. thing. I mean, and there were like, people that do there were people that um, you know audiences would recognize being in some of these shorts. I mean, that's how that was a new thing. That's how everybody started. I mean, you know, Charlie Chaplin was in just little shorts until right. suddenly people kept watching this guy, and it's like, oh, that's the same guy. The same He's guy. hilarious. Yeah. And so then they started to put 
their names on two things. and two together. You know, yeah, we, we talked about that in last episodes too, where some of the studios realized they had to like publicize the actors. Yeah, you know the stars of the movies. It's why now you can have a really great movie with people you've never <laughs> right. seen before that you don't recognize. And, you know, these people are getting paid scale and it's a fantastic film. Yes. And then you've got a Tom Cruise who gets paid $8 million. For the mummy. To, yeah, the perfect example. <laughs> right. To walk through a crappy movie that doesn't even make any money and everybody hates it. It's supposed but, to start a franchise. But it's, yeah, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's money in the bank. So yeah. all because of their name, you know, and... You know, that started thing. that started in the in the 20s and it continues today um today sometimes to the detriment oh i'm positive to the detriment sure. of a lot of studios so people paying. don't want to be attached and to you that. know a few years ago though that was really out of control um uh, back in the late 90s early 2000s the salaries were so out of control that it really that's you know we we lost a number of small studios mm -hmm. i mean like Orion and sure. so that's gone now because they could not keep up. Well, with you'd have a, you have a budget of, a budget of like four million or like two millions going yeah. just to this yeah. actor, and so you're supposed to try to make a movie with you know two or three million dollars that's left, and you've got to you got to pay a crew of hundred fifty people, yeah. you know. So it it killed a lot of the the small studios. Who and that's why now we've got just the big ones left. I mean, and Sony ate up some of the studios. Well, and yeah. Universal, you know, got eaten up by NBC, and mm -hmm. you know, we and we talked a little about that. But yeah, it it changed the face of Hollywood. You know, fifteen twenty years ago. Sure. I mean, yeah, the whole again, world's run by like, again, yeah, like you know, five or six things. Hollywood has changed many times who, over the years. Who was who? Who were the movie stars? Who were the first movie stars you knew or that you grew up? with her like that got you introduced oh, to this boy. you think i don't know um you know I, the universal monsters were what got right. me interested in horror films sure. but as far as like Big actors names. and stuff go um gosh i mean you know we're talking about with me you gotta go back a long way like a hundred years but, no, no yeah I'm right kidding. and but i remember <laughs> like i remember seeing movies with like uh paul newman and robert redford okay yeah you know and those were guys i really liked sean connery i really liked sure. as a kid you know um, Michael Caine, Gene Hackman. These were guys you could stick in a movie even if it sucked. Yeah. Um, I always said that about Gene Hackman and uh, Martin Sheen. You yeah, could okay. take the shittiest movie, but put those one of those two in it, yep. and suddenly the movie is better than it was before. Well, what's the you movie know? with Alec Baldwin where he only does the coffees for closer or the 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 cookies are for closer? What is it? What is the line? He only did that. He did that scene, and he got nominated like for I just that where he's screaming at those oh, guys. Um, um, Glenn, Gary, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, isn't that it? Man, I have no idea. I think it is. It, but if you yeah. know the scene I'm talking yeah, yeah, about, yeah, right? Where, where he comes in, he's like the sales manager guy. Yes, yeah, and he walks in. It is, I'm 99% sure that it's, it's uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. With the yeah. guy from Grumpy Old Men, Jack, uh, Lemon? Yes. Yeah. Yes. R.I.P. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yes, it is that. And, like, he just walks into that scene. And I think that's it. I'm pretty sure he got nominated. Yeah. People can fact check me and tell yeah, me I'm an idiot. Yeah. But, like, yeah. So, that's interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned, like, um, uh, Michael Caine and, and um, everybody, because I was thinking the first actors that I knew were also like Pierce Brosnan, like James, oh, sure, James, sure, Bond, sure. James Bond. Kind of, yeah. It was action my, uh, heroes. My stepdad first, first loved people. James Bond movies. So we always saw James Bond sure. movies. And so, you know, Roger Moore, Sean Connery, you know, yes. all those guys I knew because, you know, they had been in so many things, but you got to remember, I watched, I mean, I, you know, you know, I watched tons and tons of movies now, but I've you always, I've always done that. Uh -huh. now, ever since I was a kid, I used to, um, 
Saturday afternoons, the PBS station, I think I maybe I've told you this before, had a show that would come on called Matinee at the Bijou. And they would, every week, they would have a program with a cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, a, sh- a newsreel, a short, a serial yeah. adventure each week, and then uh, the film, then a feature film. And it was like 90 minutes. And I would watch it every week. I would stop what I was doing outside so I could get in to see Matt yeah. Nate the Bijou. I still remember the song yeah. that opened it's it that up. Ingrained. It was like a, I think it was like a Rudy Valley song or sure. something. And I still remember the song from it. But And that was kind of my introduction to 1920s, 30s, pre-code kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because they would show you know whatever was showing at the theater back sure. in the 30s. It was a... Huh. Cool show. I don't know whatever happened to it. I yeah. I've tried to kind of track it down to see if it's still out there somewhere. I haven't seen right. any copies of it. Um, I was just you know curiosity kind of thing. So I guess I've always had you know a thing about movies, and so I know that's why I will sit here and rattle off. Clark Gable and Cary Grant and all these people. And you're like, I don't, right. I don't know who this I is. I know the names. Because I, I, had, know those I names. had watched, you know, I've watched all these movies with these stars. And so yeah. they're, they're like, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't dawn on me, mm-hmm. you know, that other people don't know who they are. Sure. Sometimes, That's fair. You know, so I try to, I try to offer some, ba- I mean, we've talked about, <laughs> I think I've said the name Mary Pickford a hundred times. A, a, in at this, least, but, at least. Um, but I, I encourage people, if only we had a way to look those up, you know. If only there you know, were Renee the... said that to me the other day. She goes, you know, people, you say people don't know who these are. And I go, I know, but they can Google yeah. Mary Pickford. Renee, you know? can you not? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So smart. And also, I wish that, I know this is an audio medium, but like, I wish people could see your face light up when you start thinking <laughs> back to like these old, you know, movie people and like your, your childhood and stuff. It's, it's. Awesome. And well, I'm just I just happy. I love this stuff. I know. And you so do. this has been I mean, that's why this season is so big because yeah. it gives me a chance to really get bit. into my, you know, like one of my favorite things. Yeah. You know, movies and you know, I mean and horror movies, but just movies in general. Sure. You know, I just I love the movies. Yes. I always have. That so, you do. Yeah, okay. I do. All right. Let's okay. <laughs> let's get back let's on get track. Let's get back on track. Nineteen twenty two, yes. the first Hollywood theater, the Egyptian opens. Um it's built by Sid uh Grauman. Grauman. And I would encourage anyone, if you're not familiar with what the Egyptian or the Chinese... I mean, I think everybody, everybody knows the Chinese, Chinese theater. theater. I didn't the know Egyptian the Egyptian, was before that, and it closed down in, I believe, like, 92. So most people haven't seen it, but if you get a chance, Google it, look it up, yeah. and you will be stunned by how amazing this really? place was. Oh, yeah, both, and, and the Chinese theater, too. But sure. they are they were just amazing. They were They were really... The epitome of the of the phrase movie palace. Well, I mean, you already said like child care services, yeah, um, an orchestra, yeah. romantic setting, costume staff. Yeah. Oh yeah, everybody was even made sure it smelled yeah, nice. Oh yeah, everybody wore costume. But you know, a big part of that was, you know, at that time the studios owned their own theaters. Right. And we talked about Which that. We talked eventually about RKO. And, they couldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. There was an antitrust suit that was filed against them by the government because it was a monopoly of. You know, studios owning theaters, and so they can control everything. What's what? What's wrong with I that? I know, though? I know, but well, and you know, um, how do you feel about that? I I don't think there's anything wrong I, with that. I, you know, at the time, I don't think anything was. Now yeah. it's not the same because everything is owned by different things. Well, distributions. And Pepsi different, owns yeah. this, and I mean, it's just not the same anymore. Yum but brands. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was detrimental to the movie public unless unless you only had one theater in your town. 
and it was owned by Paramount, and sure. so you never saw any other studios' films. And then I think that's where they started to run into problems. But, you, but, you, but before that, you didn't see any fucking movies. So yeah, well, like, what I is guess it? I know, you know, I know. But well, I but this know. by the fifties, I guess. Though there was a sure. big threat by nineteen fifty-three when the San Antonio suit was filed. Uh, studios were in trouble anyway mm-hmm. because television had come along, uh-huh. and that changed the. It's kind of like right now. I mean, it's literally like Things just now. This yeah. is just like when television Go came straight along. to streaming and right. stuff. Yeah. And so now things are not going to theaters because nothing's Mulan, in theaters. Yeah. And so a lot of smaller films are being shown at home and Antlers. eventually they're going to give up Yes, and just go, you know what? We're just going to release this at home and make some of our money. We're back. never going to see Antlers, are we? I'm beginning to wonder. So there's a few other things too that I don't know when we're ever going to see. So no, I mean, I get, I get it. That makes sense. Um, but so, but, yeah, but anyway, that's, that's what was going on. And, but he was an independent exhibitor, which yes. was really rare at the time, but because Sid knew everybody and was this, flaming flamboyant character yeah yeah you know everybody loved him he was just the guy that was everybody's pal Mm -hmm, you know and um so they you know just made sure he had whatever movies he wanted to show yeah and uh because he did so many favors for the studios for the stars you know if they wanted a big premiere they would get it which really love the industry the the stage the they they right they'd get um you know, dancers on stage, whatever they wanted hmm. for their big premiere. I bet it was a hell of a show. So, yeah. There's a fame sidewalk outside the Chinese theater. Uh, it was kind of controversy about maybe how it all well, happened. I don't, no, nothing in Hollywood's a controversy. It's always, there's just like five <laughs> different versions of the story. Sure, sure. And that's what you roll with. Right. You just go, well, there's this version and then there's this version. And right. Probably the one Sid told is true, but the other one sounds better. Yeah. You know? No, that's so. fair. So he ends up dying in 1950. Uh, the sidewalk, the sidewalk is said to be haunted, which of course, why not? And that's, yeah, but it's really interesting exactly. that a sidewalk would be haunted. But didn't, but don't you expect as I'm building up to this uh-huh. and, and that's what and I said, said it you know surprisingly yeah not by Sid yes I yes. mean because as I'm building up to this I mean this seems to be the guy who would stay behind he would be the he would Chinese be. theater but no no yeah, it's not him he, so, I could just yeah. see him just being like absolutely not like on the other yeah, part on the I, I expected a comment from you about the last six months of his life though wait what he lived at the hospital oh yeah, well, because it was, it was convenient to his favorite yeah, restaurant it was convenient so yeah. he just paid for a room I mean like I, a hotel <laughs> I mean, seriously. I did see. I, mean, I, I did see that. But I will also tell you, my outline for this episode was so long, and from and literally last episode we had Troy. Like you don't you don't know this, but Troy had to stop me in the middle. He goes, "We cannot go through every detail." And I was like, <laughs> yeah. "Fuck, yeah. okay." Yeah, so what I normally do, like just to peek behind the curtain, is I I make an outline for the episode, and then I go through and I say, "Okay, do I need to take this out? Like yeah. I'll, I'll cut this yeah. part out, and everything." So I tried to like trim some of the fat. I know, but yeah, that, it's, was, it's that was one I expected to hear from from you. It though, is really funny because funny. Yeah, well, wasn't he? Like, and they let him get away with it because it's who he was. But wasn't he visiting know? someone or no? Why was he there? No, he he. It was close to his favorite restaurants. But why was he at the hospital in the? In the That's first- why. I thought he was like visiting his somebody or something. No, his his mother had died. Right. That, okay. That's but, what I was thinking. But of. he had, he kept all her. He had a, a um, at the Ambassador Hotel. He had an apartment that uh-huh. he lived for thirty five years. But the last six months of his life, it got to be too far to walk to his favorite restaurants. So instead uh, of you know moving or something, he just got a room, a room at the hospital and would just come and sleep there. What a life. Yeah. That's, so I that's, just thought it was funny. That's so that's amazing. Okay, so anyway, the, it's Hollywood man. The the sidewalk 
haunted um, probably by this guy named Victor Killian, I guess, who's killed uh, nearby in 1979. So, some fun facts. Suffer the loss of an eye while staging a fight scene with John Wayne in 1942. He's known for his role as Grandpa on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yeah, yeah and you're probably not even remotely familiar with I that. I only know Mary Hartman because of, it was on Family Guy. And oh, okay. Stu, it was like, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I remember yeah, that it's a show. Weird, um, it was such a weird show. I It wasn't anything that I really watched. Is it literally called Mary Hartman, comma, Mary Hartman? Yeah, yeah. What and it was like name. a spoof of a soap opera. And I want to say now I'm not without looking this up or anything, and I'm and not by any means an expert on it, but I think it was maybe Canadian. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it was on like kind of late because I remember the only times I ever watched it, I can remember being on like vacation and mm-hmm. being in like a hotel room, and you know we had like six channels. Sure, yeah. And I remember it being on, and my parents watched it or something, and I couldn't figure out what was going on, and there was a woman <laughs> with like like Dorothy pigtails or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not really it's clear on thing. that show and I didn't bother to go look it all up because I sure. just didn't have any interest in a soap opera spoof. And, and I, you know, I, I, I probably should have, but this was just meant to be kind of a short story that went along with the right. theater. Well, so because he, so he's killed uh, at 88 years old in his apartment. The murder yeah. is never caught. Seems like a very random, sad story. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, then, probably somebody, the, the, the police thought maybe he struck up a conversation with somebody who probably realized uh, who he, who maybe he was. who he was, uh, that he lived alone, that he was elderly, not in great health, and they knew they could just take like advantage a robbery of him. Kind yeah, of thing. and I think they just kind of, you know, pretended to listen to his stories and be his pal and, you know, yeah, let me walk you home, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Make sure you get home okay, and then I'm going to whack you when we get there. Just kill you know? an 88 so, But nobody man. knows for sure. I mean, that's sure. the thing. Nobody knows who killed him. Well, it's very sad, and what a coward. Um, anyway, moving on, Warner Pacific Theater. To- toted as Hollywood's um, only regular price first run theater, used signs along the Pacific Road streetcar routes to tell writers how many minutes they were away from the theater. Which is kind of funny. I, yeah, clever. I mean, it's yeah. super clever. smart marketing. That's something I've realized in this season, too, is like the birth of all these marketing yeah. tactics that yeah. I use now sure. and like that I like sure. recognize or I learned about in school or I use every day. It's like, this is where these things started. Like, yeah. I love that. Um, let's talk about the jazz singer. Yes. Late 1920s, the the four Warner brothers, there were four of them, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack, risked everything to make the first talking film. Right. So, okay, so how how did this work initially? So you have your silent film, and then they play sound through... Well, how does this work? with, you know, originally with silent, silent films, um, it had to be accompanied by music. Uh, it would be somebody on a piano, it might be an orchestra, it might be an organ, be like a big... Live music. Or, you know, some kind of live music. Then they discovered that if they... Uh, could play a record mm-hmm. that went along with the films. Now, they were not tied together at this point, sure. but it would be sort of like a sound recording. Uh-huh. And mostly it was just music. They would still have the Wasn't title cards on the screen, it, but it would be like a Victrola record. And you had to synchronize it <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> right. if it wasn't, then it would be messed up through You'd the know, whole movie. Yeah. Yep. So somebody had to be there to drop the needle on the record, so to speak. Well, Once the lion roars three yeah, times. Ex- right. Yeah. Eventually, you know, um, you know, technology, as we talked about, continued to build and sound pictures became available. But by this time, there had been silent films for so long that no one thought, well, why go to the trouble? People are paying good money to come see silent it's movies. Broken, why would we? Yeah. Why would we spend more money 
to put in, you know, sound on these sure. films. And, you know, but the Warner Brothers, and I'm sure a lot of other people, uh, realized that this was the next wave. The this future. was the wave of the future. And so the Vitaphone system that, that was devised was, as they talked about, this wonderful sound system that, you know, I mean, it was, it's what it was. That's all there was at first. I mean, later there would be other systems, but this was the big one, and it remained the big one for many, many years. Uh, but it was still taking a risk, and a lot of actors lost their jobs because of sound. We talked about that sure. in, I believe, our first episode because, you know, a lot of these actors were great silent because they could do pantomime and very expressive. But was that really you a put thing? Some, you like, put some sound on some of that stuff. Was that really it's a thing, not pretty. though? Like they couldn't... They couldn't well, a lot it. of it terrible voices or had like these awful accents. Sure. You know, they talk about these beautiful actresses, you know, from the Bronx, you know, and then oh, would get yeah. on screen with this horrible accent or they were had come over from Europe to star in films and they looked fantastic on but screen, they, they but could, you couldn't understand a word like, they were saying. That's 90% of the battle, like, I feel like. Just get an accent, yeah, coach, and I mean, change. Right, you know, right. Come on. But it's, you know, it, but nobody thought about well, that yeah, then. There, yeah, there yeah. were no accent I know, hindsight, coach, hindsight, coaches, yeah. you know. I mean, you have to remember what a task it was, well, like when Bella Lugosi came over and started. You know, here's a guy with this thick accent, which worked for Dracula. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. Uh, but he had a That's tough it. time with a lot of stuff, <laughs> right. and his career only went so far. He never really got out of horror, sure. you know, because he, he couldn't, not with that accent, you know? Um, so, uh. you know, it was a, that was a problem for a lot of people and, and it, it made a lot of jobs for theater people sure. because they already knew how to express themselves through sound because they had to reach the back of an auditorium. Right, right, right. So, you know, you, so you've got a whole change here. And so they put a lot of money, but, but the other risk you're taking was kind of like the same one that happened a few years ago, about what, 10, 10, 11 years ago when uh, the movie studios decided we're going to go all digital. Oh, yeah. Because it's going to save us a lot of money and you're going to have to put in digital screens because we're not going to make prints anymore. Sure. And people panicked. Yeah. Because the digital systems were very expensive. Now they've come down now, but at the time, you're talking about 30, 40 grand per machine. Damn. So let's say you're an independent guy with three screens. That's a hundred thousand dollars you've yeah. got to come up Who, with. Yeah, you don't have yeah. that. Yeah. Or, you know, and then they would do deals and a lot of people got screwed and ripped off sure. out of that too. But you know, I mean, imagine a multiplex with ten or twelve screens, and let's say you own fifty of them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's millions of dollars right there in new technology. Right. But they took the risk. And the theaters either had to do it or they didn't have movies anymore. They didn't really have a choice. Um, so digital was a big scandal, but that's not the first time. This was the first time right. when they went to sound. Were you were you out of theaters before it went to digital? No, I was. It was right before I got out. Right before it had switched to digital, I did not want. Do you any think part you would have that. folded that shit? Like, uh, we... I don't know. I mean, we we the, the theater's still there. Sure. I mean, you know, the the digital got put in, but. Uh, I didn't want any part of it. Yeah, uh, that was I didn't want any part of that. Huh. That was crazy. And I mean, how does it work on a practical level? So they don't send you a reel anymore. Is it like a they send you a drive? File? They send you a drive, and then you have to have a code. If your bill is paid and sure. you've paid for the film, you've paid your advance. They send you a code that unlocks the drive. Interesting. And then they, you could show the movie. But they know how many times you've shown it. So let's say that back sure. in the day when you had reels. 
you could show the movie a billion 50 times, times yeah. and tell them you, you did it five. Right. And they'd never know. But with these drives, they know exactly how many times it's shown. And so when it's, and where. Yeah. And yeah so yeah. they've got a lot more control over theaters. Sure. And, you know, but I mean, the current state of affairs is bad for everybody. It's bad for studios. It's bad for theaters. If I were Netflix, I would just buy theaters. And uh, just, yeah, I would well, buy a, they can't, a, a chain. But they can't. But because of the laws. Because of the, the antitrust the, laws, they can't go buy theaters. Mm, yeah. That's why okay. there's no Amazon theaters. <laughs> That's see? true. Or Netflix theaters. Interesting. I mean, that's why. They're already ahead of my Monopoly idea. Yeah, yeah. Because so, I'm sure I mean, they would. The idea they... is there, but someone would balk at it, and it would be stopped. But that's kind of smart. Singer became <laughs> yes, the jazz a, singer became Yeah, the jazz singer became a real landmark in American cinema, even though the movie's horrible. And it's like incredibly racist. Um, Al <laughs> Jolson is in is. blackface through oh, a good part of the sake. movie because it's about a you know a vaudeville singer. And back then, a lot of guys did all that Amos and Andy stuff in mm-hmm. blackface. And you know that's I mean sometimes if you watch like a lot of people learn about some of this movie stuff for like watching old Bugs Bunny cartoons. Well, yes, where yes. they would have Humphrey Bogart and things yeah. that, you know as a guy, but they would have him in blackface going "Mammy, Mammy," you know that's that's from the jazz singer and and that was okay back then. Yeah, it was okay back <laughs> oh, then. It God. was 1927. I mean, and it wasn't okay, but it was no, accepted. But, and so now we have to uh, look at it's like um, it's like Cecil DeMille's, it's like uh, or Griffith's um, Birth of a Nation. It was yes. the first film that was a long full-length motion picture that told a story Mm -hmm. and it's about how the clan were heroes after the civil war (sighs) so this stuff has come back to bite people in the ass but we're stuck with it because it's always gonna i mean it's it's a horrible movie that no one should watch now but it's history and we have to accept the fact that this was a movie that was made and you know here it is it's a landmark in cinema and same with the jazz singer yeah it's a horrible movie of a guy singing in jazz in blackface but it's also the very first sound film yes so, so we have to acknowledge it yeah and so that but that's that my friend in a nutshell <laughs> is america it's, right there it is so there we go it is so the jazz singer <sighs> didn't didn't open in hollywood instead open in new york yes. uh, october 6 1927 because they couldn't get the the theater built uh, quickly enough but none of the Warner Brothers were able to attend because Sam suffered a cerebral hemorrhage literally worked himself to death and die, yeah, to dies in the theater and deal with the the movie at the same time right and dies 24 hours before yeah. um it's crazy. So the Warner Pacific Theater opens six months later, and you said Sam Warner couldn't physically be there that night, but everyone was uh, assured he was with them in spirit, and he was, but not in the way well-wishers meant. <laughs> you see, there was no way a man like Sam Warner would leave the world uh, with his work unfinished. I totally get that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yeah, you have unfinished business. Yeah. I, I definitely I mean, get did, that. Didn't, he didn't get the theater done in time. Uh, he's not going anywhere. No, hell I mean, no. Not a guy who literally worked himself to death right. over it. Yeah. Um, if it, Again, it goes back to that if you can stay behind – Here's a guy this that is, definitely would have. Absolutely. This fits the bill. And his ghost has been seen in that building since that night in April 1928. Uh, people see him walking around looking frustrated, tired. This kind of reminds me of George Costanza in, on Seinfeld, <laughs> right. where he's like, just look like you're busy and like yeah, frustrated. Right, just right. like people yeah. just think like, oh, you're doing a lot of stuff. Um, a cleaning crew even saw him get on an elevator and push yeah. the button I to was, go I up. I love that story. And the crew quits. Um, the guard, however, was not bothered by the story. He was like, he only wondered like, why would a, why would yeah. a ghost use an elevator? Yeah. And I said, it, when I was doing this, I said, Oh, yeah, good point. So, do yeah, you it think? Is. No, that's that's curious to me. Do you think ghosts know they're dead? Well, it doesn't sound like it in this case. It doesn't. Um, but in general, I, I mean, what do you think? It, I think it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there are times when 
you know, um, like in this unfinished business kind of situation, you know, that he's for whatever reliving. reason is, is just reliving the, the time that he was alive and is kind of stuck there and probably is just doing the same things over and over again. I mean, you know, they say hell, kind of hell is hell is repetition. It so sounds miserable. I know it does, but I mean, as far as, you know, here's a guy who died with all of this frustration and anger on his sure. mind and has a, you know, his, his brain literally explodes, <laughs> you know, uh, because he is stuck. And so laugh at that. angrily, he's, he's just forced to relive his, you know, his final months over and over and over again, yeah. maybe forever. It's like the, the story about, uh, you know, with um, Dante's Inferno and the guy pushing the rock up the hill. Yes. I mean, that's that's Sam Warner here. Uh, He's pushing the rock up the hill forever. But was he a bad guy? I don't think so, no. So I just think that I just think he had, you know, became so obsessed with what he was doing that yeah. he just refuses to leave it behind. What if my afterlife... Or maybe he has by now, but at the time... What if my afterlife is just editing this podcast yeah. over and over and over again? It's yeah. like, well, I didn't yeah. ask for this. No, like, I know, right? Hell? I don't deserve well, this. Well, let's hope that you don't have a cerebral hemorrhage while <laughs> you're working on the podcast. I know. So. Fuck. Okay, so Sam hasn't been seen in years, but people often hear moving stuff around upstairs. Yeah. Um, the elevator used to operate by itself until eventually it got kind of messed up, so it doesn't. Yeah, well, there's an earthquake, and that, it got right. damaged. They never repaired Right, it, right. So. so according to Paul Miller, the director of the USC Entertainment Technology Center Digital Center Lab, and I literally said, fuck me after that, because like, that's such <laughs> a really long, long title. I know. Sam's still there. So he wrote, uh, he, he, you said, he wrote to me about 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, we had, said, had a conversation exchange. So while the the elevator is no longer operational. Uh, things still do move around suspiciously. It seems Sam may have uh, prosperity for high propensity. I'm sorry, propensity. <laughs> sorry uh, for high technology items: cellular phones, PDAs, digital cameras. Uh, frequently turn up missing in the theater, never to be seen again. He also has an affinity for sharp objects and hand tools. See, that to me, that sounds like cellular phones, PDAs, digital uh, PDA. knives. PDAs. That tells you how long well, this I, letter we, was. You, but literally, I was digital like, cameras turning up missing in the theater, never to be seen again. That also sounds. You may have a homeless problem. Well, you know, people yeah, like getting into the building like, and taking check the things. local pawn right. shops. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, um, he's so the re- scissors are disconcerting. Yes. Though. The the scissors. Yeah. Being uh, replaced that would make me a little nervous. That's so, a, that is a, a little... ghost with scissors wandering <laughs> around my building. I don't know how I feel that is about different. That. So. Um, okay, let's move on. How do I pronounce this? Pan- Pantages. Pantages Theater opened on Hollywood Boulevard in June 1930. Troy, can I ask you? Yes. What do you have against Marion Davies? I feel like you I have don't. a vendetta against <laughs> no, her. I really, I really don't. I I hate William Randolph Hearst. Uh, I sure. just have a. I do have a, a problem with him, and you know, I think that Marion Davies was was an attractive and probably very sweet girl, but she's sure. a terrible actress. You you hit that point and home a yes, lot. Yes, I do, and I just kind of felt that you know, I mean. Come on. You know, that was the movie that opens there because he was twisting somebody's well, arm sure. to get it to open. I don't know. I guess that kind of thing just really bothers me. That okay. whole, um, you know, that whole thing of just, you know, using his power Name. to yeah. to make a career for somebody who would definitely not have gotten one well, on sure. I mean, there were a million pretty girls in Hollywood. I I don't know. I don't have anything personally against her. Okay. I just, um, right. if you say I just don't think she's. I just don't. <laughs> I just don't think she deserved. Well, she didn't have a lot of fame, but okay. You know, I mean, really, the the little fame she had was because well, of him. Let's and, be mad at Howard instead of her. I feel like it's his fault, but 
No, not Howard Hughes. Rand- William Randolph. Hearst. Oh no, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, no, Hearst. I'm sorry. So, okay, so yeah, this Hearst is sucked. But the theaters so, then bought by Howard by Hughes, Howard Hughes right. whom I'm going to talk about at length because oh, he well, sounds yeah. dope I mean, as fuck. Well, but that's why I I wanted to talk about the Pantages because and when you know it's Howard Hughes's ghost that's supposed to haunt the building. Yes. How can you not talk about Howard Hughes? And I've heard the name so many times, but I learned so much through this episode. Well, he seems watch, so cool. You should watch the the movie, The Aviator. Yeah, 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 the Leonardo DiCaprio yeah, thing? Yeah, it's a great yeah, movie. That's him, right? Yeah, that's him. That's Howard Hughes. Awesome, and I love Leo. So, okay, so it's bought, by Howard, bought by Howard Hughes in 1949. You said, in his time, he was a daredevil aviator, a movie maker, an inventor, a playboy, and in the end, a sad and possibly insane recluse. It has been said that his... Uh, that his days in Hollywood were the happiest of Hughes' life for his last days. This may explain why he returned to haunt the, the theater. He sounds awesome. Well, I think he was. I mean, I mean, a little strange. But, well, yeah, I mean, sure. But, the, but Aren't again, most you eccentric know, people? But, well, here was the thing. There were several times during this when I wanted to stop and go, you remember what we said about the limbs. Yeah. The rich are different than they you They are and different than you And mates. I think that explains some of his issues. Now, obviously, you know, he had some... Some some mental issues, some OCD problems, things that could have been controlled by and the drugs too. Things that, well, help. but things that could have been controlled by real medication today that yeah. just didn't exist at the time. Right, and he went off the deep end, you know. Right, and uh, I mean he couldn't help it. I mean it's not anything that he did. I don't blame him for it. I just I think he just really think he was an interesting guy. Was he? Did I he? Really did he do. end up being a bad guy? No, think? I don't, think, don't so. think so. I just think he. I mean I'm sure he used his. I mean like. Yes. Any rich mogul, I mean, I'm sure he did plenty of things that didn't, broke some that didn't help people. Sure. But on the other hand, you know, um, he's such an interesting character, mm-hmm. you know, that um, you can't, you know, you you, t- you look at his story and, and so much of what he did, you know, is missed because most people remember who who remember when he was alive like I do. I mean, I remember when Hughes was alive and when he died. Yeah. But all we ever heard about toward the end was how he was crazy and that he, you know, he never cut his fingernails and he yeah, peed gross. in jars and you know, I mean, we only heard the really weird stuff. And that's what people became obsessed with. I mean, that's a tabloid culture that we sure. live in, even in the 70s. Um, but when you look back at all the, I mean, that's why I wanted to talk about all the other things that he had done. Yeah. You know, with the planes and the, you know, just, I mean, crazy stuff. He flew you know? that plane that was oh, like the yeah. only time it ever. Yeah, the Spruce Goose. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it's, he really did a lot of things he doesn't get credit for. But yeah, yeah he was still kind of a nut. It kind of, it seems but. like, I even wrote here, it said, spend time with a lot of famous ladies, but he still seemed like a gentleman, question mark, as uh, far as like... I think so. I mean, the, the funny thing is he, he remained friends with so many of them. Um, Catherine Hepburn, especially. Yeah. You know, they uh, they were really tight and they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. You know, and, and just like, you know, when Jean Tierney, when her daughter was born deaf and blind and severely handicapped, he paid all of her expenses right, for life. Right. You know, I mean, just because they were friends, you know. So I want to think he's he stayed a good on guy. good terms. Well, I mean, you know, his the wife that he married that divorced him eventually the first one as or the he second started one? to well, the second one, Jean, sure. once he started to kind of deteriorate and she split up with him and he gave her an alimony for I mean it's not a huge alimony, but it, it was in nineteen seventy one. Seventy grand a year was really good money. I in would take that now. But 
Um, but she, and he never, he didn't say she had to sign an NDA or anything. Mm-hmm. And, but she would never discuss anything. She stayed loyal I to him. I thought that so, was kind of weird. Well, but there had to have been, she must have still felt good things toward him. Oh, sure. It wasn't that he was cruel to her or anything. He just, I think she just realized he'd kind of lost his mind, you know? So, yeah. um, I think she probably felt sorry for him more than anything else, mm-hmm. and she, but she wasn't going to talk about it. Yeah. And she didn't, she could have. And he wouldn't have stopped her because he never asked her to. And you probably don't so. do that if he's a piece of shit. Well, so right. Probably, if he's horrible he's a good to her, guy. right. It's yeah. probably decent. I like to think that about yeah. him. No, uh, I know. So I know. In, in 48, uh, Hughes gains control of RKO, but he lets it go in 1953, eventually yeah. regaining control. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. Um, sells it to basically like kind of wash his hands of it. He's injured in a plane crash in July 1946, um, including a crushed collarbone. Really bone. bad. 24 crash. broken ribs. I didn't even know I had 24 ribs. I know. Well, I think it's 24 breaks. I don't know oh, if it's 24 separate ribs. That makes way um, more sense. It, we, yeah. we, don't have 12, we don't have 24 yeah, it's, ribs. It, but it, it 20, broken in 24 places. Got it. Numerous third-degree burns. Well, I, I think I put that. I wrote that wrong. I feel like I've been getting in pretty good shape lately, Troy. I feel like there's like <laughs> six and six or 12. I, I, I don't know. But know. I think it was 24 plate. Bro- that, 24 breaks. Let's that, put it that way. Sound, okay, that yeah. sounds right. So then eventually takes control over uh, TWA, because why not? Um, he's eventually forced to sell his shares to the tune of four point three billion dollars in well, today's money. Yeah, in today's money. Yeah, Jeez, I mean that's I I looked that up and I thought there's no way five hundred forty seven million in nineteen sixty. Yeah, that seems like a lot of money. Hell yeah. And I thought I better look that up Just, because yeah, you're you, if you don't ask me, you know I mean I, I somebody should, somebody should somebody ask will me. ask yeah, me if you don't. And so I looked it up and I saw. I mean, it really, four point three billion dollars for control of TWA. Uh, okay. uh, an airline doesn't even exist anymore. I know. You know at, that's at the what, thing. Also, so. I've been thinking about this too. Like, at what point? Like, what? What point does money just not fucking matter? Like, well, 4. when 3, you're that rich, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, this the 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 tool company that he owned was started by his started, father. Right? Yeah. During when during the Texas oil boom, so you know, and then he turned that into Hughes Aircraft, and. It was just, it was more money than he could possibly spend. Yeah. You know, in a lifetime. What is that like? And, I mean, this guy, I don't know. This guy, I mean, he burned through so much money, you know, on a whim, you know, buying all those hotels and <laughs> he in bought Texas up everything then, in Texas, yeah, right? Like, he bought every restaurant and hotel chain that had started in Texas. What a crazy thing. Bought them thing. all and then put them in a trust and then sold them. And then did when when he moved to Las Vegas, bought up all those hotels that you know the this was at the point in Las Vegas history when uh, the gaming board, the gaming commission, and the state were starting to run the mob out. So he saw a good deal yeah. on these hotels. Sure. So he just bought them all up just what? because he could. You know, what I is, mean, what is you know? That? And then freaked out because they were doing underground testing. Oh, sure, you know, sure. and got mad and left. Crazy. I mean, you uh. know, and and. and you know, I, I don't even, when you know it's a clear case of someone having psychological issues, sure. you hate to sit around and go, oh, yeah, no, he's just nuts, man. Because, I mean, there's, there's nothing he could do to help that. Sure. And having all that money probably not good didn't for help things. And, it's not good for anyone. You know, and he lived at a time when no matter how much money you had, that can't be treated, you know, because the, 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 they didn't know, you know, the medicine, the, the, the farm pharmacology just didn't exist sure. at the time. 
And so he did the best he could with what, what he, he had. had. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies gone berserk. Sure. I mean, he just, you know, wish there was a guy with all this money and didn't know what to do with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, he just moved all over the place, lived all over the world. I mean, it's kind of entertaining, the, the stuff about the, you know, uh, you know, as as we're running through a news cycle about who pays taxes and who doesn't. What do you um, mean? Yeah, he, uh, you know, lived in a place for 179 days yeah. and then leaves so he doesn't have to pay I lo- taxes. I love it. I you love know, it. And, I love it. But there are laws now. That, to get away that, from that, that, yeah, that yeah, don't you do that, that. that you can't do that anymore, and this is why, right? Is because, because of, of Hughes, well, because and, of all even, that money. Even afterward, they couldn't even sue the estate, right? Yeah, because, because like, they couldn't ever they prove couldn't he prove. had a permanent residence. And was, wasn't he rich as fuck at like nineteen or something? Too? Yeah, he like, took over. Yeah, he he ended up inheriting his parents' company at nineteen. If, See, that's the other problem. Well, hell yeah. I mean, you're way too young to be able to deal with hundreds of millions of dollars when you're 19 years old. If you gave me that much money in the at 19, 1940s, I'd be dead right now. Yeah, exactly. My first yeah. off, both my nostrils would not exist and <laughs> yeah, I would just exactly. be a big hole in my face yeah. and I would have OD'd and died a long time ago. Yeah. Like, and you know, you know so I that. mean, really he lasted a lot longer than most people. Would, right. Right. If you look at <laughs> Did he live longer than 27? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the kind right? of the, the curse. So, yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So eventually he becomes addicted to pain pills, which mess with his OCD. Yeah. Um, he used tissues to pick everything up and, um, one, once watched the 1968 film Ice Stallion Zebra. Station Zebra. Station Zebra, yeah, I'm sorry. Richard Burton movie. I believe, 150, so. 150 times. 150 times in a row. Why? Uh, you really liked it? I, I, guess so, I guess so, but jeez. I know, it's crazy. I mean, again, though, I, I use that word. I, I, I shouldn't know, say that, I know. but... That's that's pretty out there. That really is just what you it know, is. So he managed you know. to turn his military contracted aircraft service into a tax exempt uh-huh. charity. Again, see all just, these things that you can't do anymore. He's the know, reason. He's the reason. Right. You know what? Like as long as you're playing within the rules, he was sure, and he was. It was all legal at the time. Why not? Why not? Yeah. So figured out a clever way to get his uh, managers a lot of money at retirement mm-hmm. tax free, which I, yeah. I love that. That too. was clever too. Again, yeah. can't do that anymore either. But it reminds you know. me in the office whenever Jim wants to leave to go do his new thing and Dwight's like um, I'm gonna fire you or whatever so like best I can do is like four weeks you uh-huh. know like paid you know right, all right. that like I love that um, so he basically he dies on April 5th 1976 only weighed 90 pounds and was, yeah, it was a terrible condition that yeah. sucks man yeah. like I know we're kind of joking about like oh he did all this fun stuff and, yeah, and crazy things sad. but it, it is very sad um, after his but here's the thing you don't know yeah yeah and there's what, what I mean got? there's a little bit more to the story than what I put in here I just kind of hit the highlights because I was afraid I was digging too deep of an uh, Howard Hughes hole this was a 21 page I know it, it was getting deep with just Hughes but um, there were lots of there were like um, wills that appeared besides the one the you one know, you talk about uh, there was an autobiography that was supposedly written by a guy named uh, Clifford Irving in the 70s and it was the autobiography of Howard Hughes uh, but uh, Hughes didn't write it it wasn't even a biography of mm. Howard Hughes because um, the guy claimed he'd done all these interviews because nobody had seen Howard Hughes in years right so he didn't think anyone would you got like there's a movie check? there's a movie with Richard Gere it's really worth watching hmm. and that's what it's about and it's about him um, pretending that he interviewed Howard Hughes. I mean, anytime there's that much money to be moved yeah. around, and I'm so not Hughes, surprised. you know, actually broke his silence and secrecy to deny that he had cooperated with the writing wow. of this biography. Wow! Uh, but, and no one had heard from him or seen him in years. I mean, they knew where he was. Sure. But he, you know, for all 
Irving knew he was dead. That's so uh, he. Yeah, uh, it's a great movie. The yeah. movie's really great. And and I remember when the book came out, and when I was in the book business, you used to see copies of it all the time, and uh-huh. which was kind of funny when you knew the story behind it that it right. really wasn't a biography of Hughes. Wow. It was just something he claimed he had written with Hughes's cooperation. That's. But, he Imagine didn't. like being like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a ghost. But and that's how famous he well, was sure. and what a mystery and enigma he was to yeah. everybody because the tabloids, he was in like the Inquirer like every week. Yeah. You know, there was something about Hughes in there and he all just the didn't time give a fuck. because he was this bizarre recluse, huh. you know, so that's what he is became he famous for. So, uh, well, I'm not even, I wouldn't even say he was Gatsby because he's just more mysterious than that. Yeah. I mean, no one ever saw him. Huh. It's it's a really, you know, there's there's some documentaries and stuff out there. If you ever have some free time, when you're not working on the, our movie list, but if you have some free time, look some stuff up because there is some stuff out there. And I would encourage to people listening, um, if you're if this has kind of piqued your interest at all yeah. about Hughes, there are some good books out there about him, but and some good documentaries that really tell what happened, yeah, what the story was. But huh. the um, the story with the guy with the, Melvin. There and again, we you know it's the movies. It's Hollywood, of course. There's a great movie called Melvin and Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Robards plays Howard Hughes. Um, I forget who plays uh, Melvin Dumar, but it's he picks him up on the side of the road, and it tells the story like it really, like he claimed it happened. Right, that he picked him up on the side of the road, and then after he died, Scotty shows up with this mysterious man shows up with this sure. will that leaves him all this money, and we'll never know. If it's true or not. What, That's the thing. Where did I mean, the Mormons come into this? Well, they were like, they became like his bodyguards and like oh. watching over him. I'm sure with the idea that they were going to get all some that money out money. of it. I'm sure yeah, they were getting paid, yeah. you know, a good sum of money to do all this stuff. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, they started to call it the the Mormon will because it was taken yes. to the, the, the LDS, desk of yeah. a, an LDS official. And um, that's an interesting story. And that movie is... Um, pretty good movie yeah it's fun to watch i'll have to check it out yeah. so okay so uh after his death a note like i said notes found giving yeah. out 1.56 billion to various charities the mormon will as you mentioned it's eventually rejected by nevada courts yeah. um his estate is split up among 22 cousins so even 2.5 billion that's still be, that's a lot of even split 22 ways dude, that's a heck of a I lot of money i would be so fine with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, many still believe that Howard Hughes haunts the theater. So one conference room in particular that used to be um, his office seems particularly haunted with uh, crazy cold spots, noises, cigar smell, even an apparition every now and then. There are also tales of a singing woman that dates back to around Yeah, just in the theater itself. has nothing to do with Howard Hughes. But, yeah. You know, so again theaters and ghosts of course you know yeah why so. not why not so the voice um, occurs no matter what time of day and it was in the early 2000s picked up on a microphone during a stage um for a live performance and so you, you have this quote that says perhaps the spookiest encounter um at the theater occurred when a wardrobe woman was uh, the last to leave the theater one night as she walked toward the side exit in the auditorium the emergency lights in the aisles went out left to stumble around in the darkness she became confused and was able to find her way then, from out of the blackness around her, a large, firm hand gripped her by the elbow and led her to the door. She opened it, letting in some outside light, and turned to thank her rescue for his assistance. She was alone. There was no one else in the theater. Yeah. Spooky. It's a good story. Spooky I as like hell. That story. That's amazing. Yeah. That's all I got. 
Yeah. That's cool. it. That's Hollywood theaters. Yeah. That's Hollywood theaters. Next time we're going to delve into, I'll give everybody a little preview. You're going to tell? Gonna, I, don't, I don't even know. We're going to delve into a two-parter. Oh, um, shit. It's going to be hotels. Okay. Haunted hotels in All right. Hollywood. So, uh, but it will be a two-parter. Uh, that will be after our Halloween episode. So yes. that's actually going to be in um, November. November. Yeah. Awesome. So. Well, I'm excited. Okay, so it's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or um, comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This first one comes to us from Sarah, and the subject is Spider-Man of Denver. Uh, says, hey guys, listen to your podcast a lot and really enjoy. Just heard uh, your first episode of the new season. It was responding to explain the Spider-Man thing in, in Denver. It's a really creepy story about a man that was mentally ill and homeless. He moved into a crawl space of a home. He ended up killing the husband when the wife was away and then went back into the crawl space, uh, stayed there for a little while, creeped the hell out of his wife. Not necessarily paranormal, but creepy. His name was Theodore Edward Coney. Did we talk about this? No, I don't think that's us. I think she maybe sent this to the wrong podcast. You may uh, want to cut this part out. I will. We talked we about Denver, but not a Spider-Man. No, in the first episode, we didn't even talk about Denver. Uh, well, I brought up a, a, a memo from, or a, a memo, an email from somebody saying, hey, you guys should check out Denver. But oh. that was, I don't think we talked about Spider-Man. I don't think that's... Well, I had Spider-Man on my shirt, remember? Because you mentioned... Well, maybe. This doesn't sound right. Uh, okay, I'll, I'm going to go on we should leave that one out. Okay. Uh, this... This one's from Tanya. It's it's titled Silent Film. So the episode about the old movies, Hollywood Studio Haunting, was fascinating. I love uh, old silent films and loved hearing all your facts about them. I'm definitely going to find Phantom of the Opera. I've never seen it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Troy, if it's you get time, one. you should watch the silent films from Germany. They are amazing. Also, yeah, I've seen some Doctor uh, Do- Cabinet of Dr. Caligari sure. and some of that stuff. So it says they're amazing. Also, of course, uh, L- Lumiere Brothers and George Meelis. Meelis, yes. yeah, from Earth to the Moon. and yeah, We talked about the Lumiere Brothers a little bit in this episode no way could that stuff ever be boring um smiley face i think i could find it boring but i'm sure it's interesting no it's it's interesting i've seen from earth to the moon and i've seen some of the lumiere brothers stuff and it's it's cool to see just because it's just interesting yeah i'm sure you've seen the um at least an image i've seen it like pop culture from earth to the moon the mellis thing with the rocket in the man from the moon's eye the rocket lands know. in his eye and his face is all screwed up and it's got a rocket in it. I don't you, know. You, I'm sure if I've you seen saw it. it, you'd re- you'd go, oh, oh okay, that's it, it what that is. It's from Family Guy or some yeah, dumb shit. It, right, exactly. Right. But yeah, it's a cool image. Ah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for writing in. Um, we have a couple new patrons that I want to shout out, so people that have supported us on Patreon. Um, so thank you to Lindsay, Jeff, Heather, and Kellen. So just thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah. It really it helps us yep. make this show not sound terrible right, and like keeps right, us doing what right, we're doing. Right. That's all I got, man. Okay, that's it. Cool. Done. All right. Works October's for me. October's over. Well, not yet. No, it's not October third. <laughs> yeah, it's just starting. <laughs> Where can they find us? Uh, well, you can find us on. Well, you've probably found us on iTunes or Spotify or. I don't anywhere that you listen to podcasts yeah. and when you're there, uh, leave us a review better yet. Share us with your friends. If they don't listen, pass it along to them. Hopefully they will enjoy it too. Just 
always make sure that they start at the beginnings of the seasons. <laughs> yes. I try to always mention that so people don't jump in into the middle, but, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, if you're a completist, you want to start you know, sure. from the beginning of the season. So anyway, guys, thanks so much for all that you've done to support the show. We really enjoy doing them. I think we'd be doing them even if you weren't listening. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're glad that you are. And we will see you in a couple of weeks for our... Halloween. Episode. Halloween, spooky time. All right, so this episode of the American Hauntings oh, podcast we was written by we Troy done. Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. The show airs every other week, offering history, hauntings, folklore, legends, and the truth as we look into America's darkest corners. Check out the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for show notes, more info about the episodes, and links speaking, to more from American Hauntings. Speaking Hauntings. of that, wait, what? wait, wait, wait. What? When you, when you have that what? up on, you you have that split into the individual episodes, and you, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay, so. Yep. You know what might be helpful? Renee actually suggested this. If in some of those um, notes, mm-hmm. if you took like a picture of Mary Pickford or oh, a picture yeah. of Howard Hughes and stuck it in there just so people could see what they look like if they don't know who these people are, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I thought maybe that might be a way that people could check out the episode, see the show notes, and then see a picture of some of these people. So you guys, this is just you, a thought. You guys so. trying to tell me how to do my job? No, no, no. It was just an idea. That's why you're over here. Hey, right? Hey, talk to Renee. More She's, she called me uh-huh. to tell me this uh-huh. in the middle of me doing something. She didn't care if I was busy, yeah. so I don't care if you are either. So wow. I'm passing it on. Thanks, Renee. So. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, just make more work for me. No, actually, I like that a lot. Um, I, one thing I used to do, I used to include your monologues in the show notes oh, really? for things. So I used to do that. Uh, there's we, lots of typos in well, there, though, because I... Yes. <laughs> and I edit as I, know, I read. I know, I know. You can't do that. Well, no, so. so I, okay, you're right. I need to do things like, yes, include pictures, things like that, links to other fun stuff. Um, I guess if you're actually still listening at this point, like, let me know what, what <laughs> yeah. do you want to hear? Like, yeah. the, or, or what, what you, you want, want included. There, what you want to see. Yeah, because, like, yeah. If, if a picture of Mary Pickford or somebody, because I Googled her, so, like, why wouldn't right. I just put that in the show sure. notes? Um, so, no, that is good advice. Thank you, Renee. Yes. Um, Renee. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more. And you should check out our main website at AmericanHauntings.net. Which I just updated. Did you? Yes, I did. Good for you. And if you want even more from us, you can be a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail and more thanks to our supporters we have upgraded our equipment for the show and with continued help from you we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future take a minute check it out we think we'll like what you find at patreon.com slash american hauntings be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show suggestions reviews jokes things you want me to put into the show notes or just want to tell us what you really think of us we're reachable via email twitter instagram facebook and by carrier pigeon telegram telegram candygram candygram until next time goodbye So long. See you later. See ya.